Welcome back to Bond by Numbers, episode 5, Goldfinger, 1964, the third James Bond film ever, the fourth in our retrospective series. I'm hoping, across the pond, I've got my kin all ready to go. Josh, Jeff, are you with me? Presents. Present. That also would tie in with Christmas, as Christmas has just passed. Yes, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Kwanzaa, happy Festivus to everybody. Festivus. For the rest of us. Oh, exactly. What is Festivus? It's a creation of uh, <laughs> Frank Costanza, the father of George Costanza. In Seinfeld. In, on Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Oh, man. Just go back and look for the episode. I don't, I don't know if, if you have a Seinfeld on your Netflix or whatever, but uh, look for that episode where Frank Costanza comes up with his own holiday and Kramer supports him. It's quite funny. There's even merchandise if you want it. And then you hear like... Yes. Is merchandise involved? Oh yeah, it's it's a huge thing. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Speaking of merchandise, well, we're doing Goldfinger today. What's I don't get the tie-in. I don't understand the tie-in. Goldfinger is notorious for being one of the most the first Bond film to 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 be merchandised up the wazoo. Ah, yes, that's true. According to the documentaries and uh, background information that I researched for this uh, show today. Hmm. According to your homework, huh? Yes. That's good. How did your homework go? Not bad. He has a lot of red ink, though, on his notes, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I'm kidding. I got to apologize, guys. I know I'm, I'm here chewing away. I'm uh, eating some holiday biscotti. One of the favorite treats in the Powell household is to bake the biscotti every Christmas. Oh, that sounds great. Christmas biscotti sounds wonderful. Yeah, it's really nice. And my wife likes, uh, likes her chocolate-dipped cookies and things so half of it is dipped in dark chocolate and the other half ah, is just left. that well i think that's how you well i mean there's you know there's two schools of thought i guess on biscotti but i i like the one i like the end that's dipped in chocolate myself. for today's show it should be dipped in gold oh <laughs> josh you're really trying to force gold into a conversation i'm trying to get on with the conversation oh, hint, hint, nudge sorry, nudge sorry. wink wink finish oh, your biscotti and we'll way, continue by the way do you guys do you remember the liqueur? Perhaps you can still get it. It's like a cinnamon liqueur, I think, called Goldschlager. Goldschlager was like a ridiculously cheap uh, vodka. Is that an Austin Powers character? What am I thinking of then? Well, Goldschlager was also in the movie um, Superbad. <laughs> There's like this movie in 2007, Superbad, with like Jonah Hill. It's one of those like Joan yeah, Apatow. I remember, yeah, I know the one. And the girl, the girl that uh, I think it was, um, it was. Michael Cera. Emma Stone, it was my, Emma Stone wanted uh, Goldschlager, and they're like, "Yeah, sure, we'll get it for you." And it was like the grossest. No, it wasn't Emma Stone. It was, it was, the, other it, it was the other girl, the one From, that Michael uh, Cera. Yeah, the one Michael's, that Michael Cera was into. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, did they have gold flakes inside yeah. inside the actual yeah, drink? Of, and it, yeah. what I understand. Are you sure that? Yeah, they did. I, I drank it at uni, but I didn't think it was a vodka. Uh, well, unless they're just they made up a vodka for the movie, which is very possible. We should have researched this because now we're we're coming up with all these different concepts of what Goldschlager is. Well, I drank a lot of it. I just don't. Okay. I, I couldn't drink vodka, man. That stuff hurts me too much. I, I don't know let's why just, a sugary liqueur wouldn't have. I thought it was like a cinnamon liqueur or something. Let's just say you can quantify it because you have consumed it, but we can't qualify it because we didn't do our uh, notes on what it actually is. Gold. How do you think Schlager? Goldschlager. There it is. What is this? This is, it's a Swiss cinnamon schnapps, a liqueur with very thin, visible flakes of gold. Yeah, the schnapps make sense now. I recall the schnapps being mentioned in, in, the, in the film, Superbad, actually. 
Did they actually mention any schnapps? Okay, that's fine. Josh, Jeff, let me start, please, gentlemen. Less with an apology for you, Josh, and more, I guess, with a welcome for Jeff, because, you know, <laughs> earlier earlier in the series, we were not quite sure how Jeff's going to feature in our parking lot here, how he's going to rope in and, and get himself uh, fixed to our format, and whether he'd be a, a visitor uh, or whether he'd be something more permanent. We, we toyed with the idea of having Jeff the roommate feature, and now we're proud to say that Jeff's going to be with us for most of these adventures. Mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, I would I would say so. Using the parking lot me- metaphor, we kind of like covered him and we dug him up, kind of like Richard the Third. <laughs> I don't smell as bad as that though. Do you, know, you know, I saw a documentary about that very thing. You guys probably saw the same one a couple of years ago. It was quite a big thing here in Channel Four. Um, when they gave him like a funeral, a state funeral, and all that. Oh yeah, you did see that there. Yeah. And the the interesting thing here is like I think we've said it before because it's such a random thing is that uh, Dakota Fanning is actually a, a descendant of Richard. <laughs> <laughs> the Fanning sisters, yeah, yeah. The Fanning sisters. Really? And so is Benedict, so is Benedict Cumberbatch apparently. Oh really? Yeah, he's like. Oh, and you said that's why they chose him at, to play that character in that reenactment. Uh, that was probably one of, reasons, one of the reasons besides him being a Shakespearean. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well that makes sense. Well, but yeah, I'm surprised Richard the Third. You know, I mean, he's considered the big villain, right? And I guess on a, today's topic, is Goldfinger considered one of the big Bond villains? Mm-hmm. But is there more nice to Goldfinger like like there is to Richard the Third than just what you know Shakespeare and Fleming have wrote about about them? So let's see what we can get if we we can glean any depth from Goldfinger today. We could we could try and put a Goldfinger on it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> that was lame. You did, but he has started a niche for himself, Josh. He has done that. Partly, partly, partly. Well, guys, let's see. Uh, First of all, let's just do a quick recap of episode four. We looked at um, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. There it is. Came to the tip of my tongue. That's a good segue. Uh huh. Well, it it was a great, great film. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. We all enjoyed it. We enjoyed our discussion of it. It was a long show, near or over three hours, I think. By the time it was all cut and dried and. Yeah. yeah, but it needed to be a long one, didn't it? Oh, it did. I think um, as as we kept talking about Honor Majesty's Secret Service, it just kept going. And I think it was all very relevant because it sort of just blew our mind again as a, as a rewatch mm-hmm. uh, and just as an overall film. And just when you watch these movies, you have to watch them. I like to watch a film as, I'm, as if I'm watching it at when it came out. And so I thought, again, it's one of those things where when I watched it, and then I think everyone kind of, I think everyone here, at least uh, in our group, does the same thing. Is so when we watch it, we watch it again, sort of, um, you know, with our, our ears pricked up and noticing little things here and there. And I think that definitely the, the length that the last podcast was, uh, was deemed necessary, I think, for it. Yes. And it's funny, too, because that was a, a rather canonical film. You know, it becomes married and the death of his wife and all of that stuff. And now we are yeah. moving on. We're moving There's on significant to discuss this, this film, which is heralded among uh, aficionados, Bond fans, casual and serious, as being one of the best. Film right. historians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of the reviewers I have here as well for us to look into later. Yeah, it seems to be like the, what, a peak uh, Sean Connery, peak James Bond in, in general, because this movie set the formula, I think, for many, many Bond films to come. And, and just, just sort of either the super of, of the superhero sort of genre, and also later on, um, just sort of um, when the people make fun of these kind of films, this is one of the ones that they would use 
as sort of a you know a stepping stone. Yeah, it comes it comes very close to being almost parody in many ways, yeah. but the style in which it's presented uh, overrides that. I, That's I, exactly I, you it. You know what I mean? Yep. And it's difficult to parody when it's also this is the genesis of the parody in a sense. Exactly. 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 We can only really it's only really a parody in a postmodern sense. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, look. Let, let's just get into it then. Josh, where were you? Jeff, where were you when Goldfinger first came into your consciousness? Uh, much like um, for Mushroom of Love, I didn't get into Connery's until the late 90s. So Goldfinger was one of the films that I saw when I was collecting all the films in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I saw it the first time, and I thought it was all right. But uh, later on, I think after university, uh, and when, it came, when the Bond films came out on Blu-ray, I watched uh, the series again, and Goldfinger um, was just translated so beautifully to the um, Blu-ray um, ratio and graphics, I guess you could say, about it, like the visuals and the colors. It was, it was brought out so well that it, it stood out to me as being uh, one of the best-shot Bond films I've ever seen. Okay. Uh, Jeff, what about you? Well, again, so I guess sort of my my <laughs> my description of when I watch these films, it's it's all very similar. Is that again, I watch them with my dad, and so I don't have a specific, unfortunately, like a date that I can remember. But I know kind of blur. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, um, I know that when I would watch these with my dad, because he would have been twelve when this came out. I don't. He would not have seen it in the theater per se. He still would have been young when he saw it when it came to television or whatever. But he gravitated towards these films like anyone, any, uh, you know, uh, usually male child around that time or, or young adult, um, he loved it. And so, again, I loved it too, partially because my dad loved it, so then obviously I enjoyed it. But I really did enjoy uh, the Connery films because he was the first Bond, so I did like Goldfinger. And, again, I loved everything about it uh, as much as, like, I appreciate certain things more nowadays. But even just the sets and, and things, I really enjoyed it. The cars mm-hmm. um, and his – I think even as a kid, I enjoyed his um, – uh, I, I don't want to say – I guess it is cockiness, but his uh, – just sort of how he, he, he held himself, you know. So these are things that I really enjoyed. And, obviously, um, the action as well. Yeah. So I know that as a kid, I enjoyed all of that because it was. I was looking at sort of like an older film, and I was like, "Oh, is this how they did it back then? This is cool. I liked it." <laughs> I think all of us um, are influenced um, in, in our like of Bond or interest in Bond because of Goldfinger. Because even though we we, ha- we we can't recall, you know, some when we first saw it or when we experienced it, it was still in pulp culture regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Aston Martin, I was aware of before I saw the movie. The the Goldfinger, uh, the Shirley Bassey title song was very well aware in my in my memory. Even though I hadn't seen the movie, I still had the Best of James Bond, and that yeah. song was on the soundtrack. Um, uh, it's just the pop culture. Even like the James Bond Junior cartoon show oh, had Goldfinger actually, yeah. fe- featured on there as well. Right. Odd Job was very well known. Um, playing Goldeneye, I recall you know that you could be Odd Job as on the um, the, the multiplayer mode and whatnot. So it, it, it definitely, um, I think, was in our pop culture conscious even before we saw the, saw the film. You know what I mean? Well, I just want to add to that. So, for example, obviously, like, I'm, we're all here product of the 80s. Scott, obviously, you were uh, a decade previous to us if we're going by birth. But um, we were all kind of grew up then. So 
I, when I was a kid and my dad, you know, was in his uh, 30s and 40s and he would tell me about this stuff, you know, we, we grew up hearing about James Bond and, you know, so even when we were born, it had already been sort of an iconic uh, film, you know, um, franchise at that point. Uh, and so it was just kind of like in pop culture, even though pop culture isn't like what it is today with social media, it, it was still like everyone knew if you made like a, a Bond reference, even as a young kid, uh, we would understand it almost, right? So that's why yeah, like, having Bond is kind of like, it was almost indoctrinated into sort of like uh, a generation of, of young viewers even before they had seen it. So when you watch it, you're just like, oh yeah, this is Bond. Like I already, you already kind of have like a little bit of a, um, uh, a little bit of a knowledge before you go into it almost. That's what I find with, with Bond. Yeah, my, my experience is quite similar to yours. Uh, I watched these films. The Connery ones came for me later uh, as a product of the... Well, I, I only spent three weeks in the 70s. You know, I know it well. I felt it out. I got a groove, <laughs> but I, I can't really speak to, <laughs> to much experience there. But yeah, I mean, uh, in the 80s, it was Roger Moore, who I grew up with in the 90s, or playing the Roger Moore films, obviously, during the cessation there uh, mm -hmm. between films. And in the late 90s, <clears throat> when I got back into the films, Goldfinger does stand out for me, though, because... A uh, good pal of mine at uh, at high school, uh, all through school, really, just up the road from me. Um, he, he's a big Connery fan. I was, I was a big Moore fan. As, as a teenager, you know, you don't always substantiate or analyze or defend properly your reasons. You know, it's just a gut thing, and it's a competition. It's a, yeah, thing. it's a gut thing, yeah. And so I remember back on the good old GeoCities uh, website, he, he had <laughs> he had a website called the Sean Connery Cupboard, and I, of course... No way. Oh, yeah, and I had a website, uh, The More the Merrier. More the Merrier, yeah, I remember uh, that. And we, we had good fun together, by I must say. This is back in the days where, you know, writing website code and stuff was... You, you sit down and you just learn how to do it, and you you put in your gifts and you put in your pictures, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're just ripping from all. I mean, you're breaking all sorts of copyright laws, I'm sure. But where <laughs> where yeah, you're yeah. finding your information, they've already broken them before you. So, so it's like Tumblr before Tumblr. So what 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 I picture is you with a book of C plus and a drink of C plus <laughs> at the same time. Also, how big was your counter for visits? That's what I want to know. Because well, every you know what? website. Between 94 and 99, had a website counter in the top right-hand corner. That's right. It did. And I can, I'm going to find out because I've still got I, – I can find that for you before this episode ends. And I'll tell you exactly when, – when the thing was shelved and archived, I'll tell you exactly how many visitors I had. <laughs> because there's a way to go back like the, you know, the old internet, right? You can, you can find this stuff. Anyway, we're, it's all going off track here. But the point is um, – yeah, Seth, my buddy, was really big on Goldfinger, and uh, it's just a bit of fun, you know, between brows. But, but you know, I think we took it seriously enough to do to do a good job of it. And if ever my parents needed evidence of how I wasn't out causing mischief and getting in trouble, there you, you know, go. I was just you doing can this. point. Yeah. <laughs> you can point to the counter of the website. Look, yes. I'm That's here. Right, yeah. is your alibi. <laughs> One thing I want to add too is that I think you know, as a developing teenager, you know, going you know going into going out of puberty and whatnot. Bond was definitely uh, an influence on that as well, I think, for, for me and for many people, too. I mean, you have those Bond girls, and all of a sudden those sure, Bond yeah. girls, all, yeah. you know, when you're younger, you're watching them for the action sequences and stuff, but then all of a sudden <laughs> you're noticing the Bond girls after a couple of years, and then it's just like, huh, this is interesting. And then when I first heard about Goldfinger, the first thing I heard about it, of course, was what was because of the name of the female protagonist in that yeah, film. Of course. And yeah. <laughs> all those titters, you know, that occurred on the schoolyard, you know, like – talking about the movie 
Well, let's get into it, guys. I think, I think yep. we're all coming from fairly similar uh, launch pads here. So, Josh, what have you got on the production of this film? It's time to open Cubby's Corner. Well, Cubby's Corner, just to go just for our audiences who are listening for the first time, um, we are dealing with uh, Albert R. Broccoli, who was the main producer of the James Bond films through his Eon Productions, beginning with Dr. No and going all the way to the present with his kids running the uh, show since he's passed away. Uh, he also, like with the early Bond films, uh, he also co-produced with Harry Saltzman, a Canadian producer who had a lot of clout in Hollywood, that Broccoli and Saltzman worked together to make the early Bond films. Now, Goldfinger was allotted a budget of $3 million. Now, that's $24 million U.S. today. Um, from what I understand, even though you might go over this in your, uh, in your critical reception breakdown after I'm finished here, uh, Scott, Mm-hmm. is that uh, that's, it recouped its budget within two weeks, apparently. You can uh, extrapolate from there. So Terrence Young, who directed the previous two films, Dr. No and From Russia of Love, there, he got into a pay dispute with MGM. So Guy Hamilton was hired because he was a get-the-job-done kind of director, quick and sweet. Hamilton also knew Fleming and originally turned down Dr. No when uh, it was offered to him, for whatever reason. Uh, Hamilton and Fleming, they served together, in fact, in the intelligence division of the Royal Navy during World War II. Uh, He felt that Bond was too much like a Superman and wanted to give him a powerful, larger-than-life villain, hence Goldfinger. Now, Thunderball, which was supposed to have been the first Bond film, was again slated to be the next Fleming, but in 63, the court case between Ian Fleming and Kevin McClory over the rights of Thunderball was still going strong in the high court. So that's why they went to Goldfinger, which was also chosen strategically because Eon and United Artists wanted to target the U.S. market since the previous two films had featured exotic locales. And uh, just given you know the look of Goldfinger and what it deals with, you can definitely tell that this was not just a creation of a British superhero in Goldfinger, but of a Western hero. And even almost in in many ways, we can see why America is still in love with Bond because of Goldfinger. Yeah. Um, And not to mention Fleming's novels as well. Uh, And Playboy, Hugh Hefner being a fan, like all those kind of things. And John F. Kennedy being a a, a fan of From Russia of Love, which was the last film that he saw before he died. As we saw, despite an interlude in London uh, and a set piece or two in Geneva, Goldfinger is set in Miami Beach and the last half of the film is set in Kentucky. If this is the first Bond film with Ken Adam as the production designer, um, the recreation of the Fountain Blue pool area, the hotel room where Bond and Jill share their evening together, the Oric Enterprises um, interior, um, the Oric Stud exterior and interior, and the interior of Fort Knox, to name a few places, that's, I, that's all Ken Adam. Um, Guy Hamilton went to work casting Honor Blackman for the role of Pussy Galore. Blackman was best known to audiences for her role of Kathy Gale, who is sort of the pre-Emma Peel on the British television series The Avengers. A lot of people remember Diana Rigg as Emma Peel, but before her, there was Honor Blackman. If you watch some of the early, early uh, Avengers films, the black and white one, Avengers episodes, the black and white ones, 
they usually have Kathy Gale instead of Emma Peel. Um, the judo and other martial arts skills she demonstrated on the British spy actioner made her a natural for the role of mercenary and pilot Pussy Galore. Ha ha ha, funny name. Um, Harold Sakata, a Hawaiian wrestler, was cast in the role of Odd Job. Bernard Lee reprised his role of M. Desmond Llewellyn was given his biggest scene as Q thus far. And Lois Maxwell returned as Mrs. Moneypenny. Jack Lord, Miss Moneypenny, sorry. Uh, Jack Lord was unavailable um, at, for, uh, for he played Dr. No in, um, uh, sorry, he played Dr. No. He played Dr. No in Dr. No? He played Dr. No in Dr. No. He played Felix Leiter uh, in Dr. No. And I think at the time he might have been getting involved with Hawaii Five-0. I, I, can't, I can't recall. To continue the role, it went to veteran American actor, I think it's pronounced Seach Linter. I, I don't know. Did you ever get the pronunciation of his, of his first name? I think it's Cease, as in Cecil, short for Cecil. Oh, oh that Cease. actually makes okay. a lot of Cease sense. Cease Linter, okay. Oh, yeah. He's actually a Canadian, born in Timmins, Ontario. Oh, oh wow. Interesting. Isn't, isn't Timmins where Stompin' Tom's from? I think so, yeah. Timmins is also where Shania Twain, Shania Twain is from Shania as well. Shania Twain, yeah, I'm confused. And that's, right. yeah. that's where she's from. I don't know how you got those two confused, yeah. but I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> you're in Scotland, I'll allow that. Yeah, you'll, you've been there a bit too long. I, I just say Cheek Linter. That's, that's what I, so I feel. Um... Margaret Nolan, a famous Betty Page-esque British pinup model, had a walk-on, walk-off role as Dink. Uh, models, actresses Shirley Eaton and Tanya Mallet were cast as the ill-fated Masterson sisters Jill and Tilly, with Eaton getting the lion's share of iconography as the gold-clad victim of Goldfinger. Gert Froba, who was cast as Oric Goldfinger, was a little-known German actor who didn't know a word of English and was dubbed over by an English-speaking actor. Despite other additions... Uh, Hamilton had saw him in a German film called It Happened in Broad Daylight, which was in 1958. And he played a child molester, and uh, Hamilton thought he was perfect for the role. That movie was actually remade several times, uh, apparently, all the way up to Sean, Pl- Sean Penn doing a remake called The Pledge, just, to, just in case uh, if, if anyone oh, has seen that pledge. movie. Okay, um, okay Linter. <laughs> okay, that's good. I guess he joins uh, Lois Maxwell as being, in, and Harry Saltzman as being uh, more Canadians who worked in the Bond films. There you go. There's, there's more to come. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, believe me. Um, so Richard Maybaum, who wrote the first draft of the screenplay, and his adaptation had removed Fleming's twist of Goldfinger stealing all the gold in Fort Knox, and came up because because basically that's ridiculous. How could that possibly be done? Um, Especially in 12 hours is how Ian Fleming just described how it would be removed from the facility. I just well, can't. Yes, and, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what, 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 he's, what he thinks of as a ridiculous part of the story. But in, in that story, as we'll get to, uh, it, it's not like a, a sleeping gas that he's spraying either. No, no definitely not. I, I also thought that uh, that would be a great name for a band. Delta Nine, Delta Nine, Delta Nine nerve gas. Yeah, well, it sounds, like, it sounds well. like it sounds like something the terrorists would use on Twenty Four, and Jack Bauer had to go stop them from from using it. I was gonna say it sounds more like somebody who's going to stop like Agent Orange from like you know we have to get Delta Nine to help Agent Orange. <laughs> it's, it's all spy. It's all spy stuff in the end, anyways. Stuff. Yeah. So basically, they were going to he came up the idea of the dirty bomb of of irradiating the American gold supply, U.S. economy being attacked, kind of a thing. Um, which Goldfinger, which Goldeneye, kind of, kind of, I guess, ripped off later on down the road. Um, moving forward, though, uh, Harry Saltzman was unhappy with the screenplay as it wasn't British enough for him, um, and hired Paul Dane to give it that English flavor. But Connery hated the new draft, and Maybaum was hired back for the final product. So by this point, Sean Connery has a lot of clout. Yeah. Um, having delivered work 
uh, in great work, I should say, in From Russia of Love, um, which was the first full Bond film that he scored. John Barry was chosen to score Goldfinger and scored he did. For the title song, he worked with songwriters Anthony Newley and Leslie Brukus to come up with the iconic lyrics. Uh, Newley sang the track originally, but Barry called in singer Shirley Bassey to record the track and history was made or repeated. That's a Propellers reference by the Propeller Heads. I got that. By the way, you got it? Okay, good, good. (laughs) Uh, Propeller Heads is a British band. They're really into yeah. electronic stuff. They used her Shirley Bassey uh, on one of their songs called Another Bit of History Repeating. Check it out on YouTube. It's a pretty cool tune. Um, Bassey had some bad takes before the final version was recorded. EMI producer George Martin, the producer of the Beatles, ironically, the super group that Bond maligns yeah. to Jill Masterson yeah. before her death, um, who also was the future music producer of Live and Let Die, uh, convinced her to keep going, and eventually they had the track they wanted. Barry's score was big and brassy with jazz bands, anvil motifs for Odd Job, and steel was used to underline Goldfinger's evil doings. The theme song was the icing on the cake. So with all these elements, the principal photography began January 20th, 64, in Miami, without Connery. Connery was filming Marnie at the time for Hitchcock, so they used stand-ins for the location shooting. Adam constructed the Fountain Blow pool set at Pinewood so the principals could film their scenes. Stoke Park Golf Club played the role of... Um, Goldfinger's pri- private club. I should say no. I think it's not Stoke Park because they are, Stoke Park was actually the name of the club in the film. Ah. Um, we'll figure that out later. <laughs> uh, Black Park was also was used, sorry, for the wooded area where Goldfinger's men give chase to Bond and his Aston Martin, and which reached its conclusion in filming at the Pinewood Studios, where we see the Aston Martin D5 DB5 crash into a brick wall. To this right. day, the name of that alleyway on the Pinewood set is called Goldfinger Road. Oh. With second unit production in Kentucky, Miami completed, Switzerland was the next destination. Politis Aircraft um, Factory stood in, the, stood in for the exterior of Oric Enterprises. And the Furka Pass was the site of Tilly Masterson's botched job of assassinating Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. That beautiful long shot uh, that pulls up um, that we remember so well from, from the film. Uh, Bob Simmons hired for the stunt work along with Ken Adam. This was his first experience on a Bond figure on a Bond picture. Simmons and Adams made a tight core for the Goldfinger production. It was Simmons' stunt work, and, uh, which, which was sensational throughout the film, and Adams' sets were iconic. Adam oversaw the gadgets and the Aston Martin DB5's outfitting uh, with with his technological wonders with visual effects creator John Steers. In order to design the interior set of Fort Knox with some degree of believability. Cubby Broccoli used his connection in the United States Army, a Colonel Charles Ruchon, uh, to provide Adam and his team access to film at Fort Knox and had the cooperation of the United States Department of Treasury to fly Pussy Galore's Flying Circus 5,000 feet <laughs> above the Fort Knox area. But that was not enough for Broccoli, and the planes actually flew to 500 feet over in the final cut, wow. which caused fears among the cast and crew mm-hmm. that the plan- planes could get shot down. But the soldiers were good sports and played their role as extras being taken down by Goldfinger's crop-dusting nerve gas with aplomb. Because this Kentucky filming took place before the Switzerland and Pinewood scenes were filmed. It was like edited together with the Miami footage to make the final product. Now, they, of course, could not enter the gold repository itself, but this wasn't enough to design the cathedral of gold that Cubby Broccoli wanted for Fort Knox's interior. Again, Harry Saltzman was not a fan of, of the one aspect of the production, and that was the prison-like look um, that they gave it. Initially, he came around, and which is similar to his reluctance with the title song, um, which he thought was too old and did not cater to hip young audiences at the time. 
regarding Colonel Rushon, who we see his name as General Rushon on as the commanding officer at Fort Knox when they fly over in the film, this was not the last time Colonel Rushon would be involved with Eon's Bond franchise. And uh, yeah, that's basically the production history. One thing I wanted to mention is that why uh, Guy Hamilton probably why he allowed Guy Hamilton to come in and, and do it was because if uh, Fleming knew knew him and knew he'd get the job done in World War II, he probably figured he could probably come in and get it done this way too. So, well, I don't know if Fleming had to say into that, but I'm sure his input helped for sure. Uh, helped. His, his input helped. Yeah. He actually appeared uh, on the on the set of the film. Um, for Goldfinger, that was his last set yeah, of appearance. I was going to say that would have been because he because he, he died a few a few months yeah. afterwards. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this was it for him, wasn't it? Yeah, boy, he looked like a haggard what 59, 60, like holy smokes. Uh, he was old. I think he was like fifty six or fifty. Yeah, fifty eight maybe when he died. Well, man, he he looked about the same as uh, Stan Lee did. <laughs> oh, that was the man who smoked and drank himself well, yeah. to death I mean, and knew no, he was doing it. He didn't look like the character that he likes to write about. Let's put it that way. <laughs> good work there, uh, BFG. Uh, real good details. I think you um, explicated the production of that film surgically, with lots of oh, thank you. Know, lots of name dropping, lots of important uh, features, and this this way like on, laser surgery, you might say, huh? Oh, <laughs> you might say. <laughs> Leave the jokes to Jeff, huh? Me and you are yeah. qualified. We're just not qualified. <laughs> All right. Uh, I was going to uh, just ask you, though, um, this film went on to win an Oscar, right, for its... its sound editing. Effects. Yeah, sound editing, it's sound editing. Um, who was the guy in charge of that? Mm, good question. That is... Because that, that will have been the first Bond Oscar, won't it, easily? Oh, I've got it here, sorry. Uh, Norman Wanstall. Best huh? effects, sound, ed- sound effects, yeah. Sure. Sound effects, yeah. And that was the only Oscar that it got, I believe. That's right. Uh, the art direction for the film, Peter M- uh, Merton, did he have any authority over Adams? I, uh, Merton, I, I didn't get a lot of information on. The uh, the, the, the sources that I noticed, uh, that I used, um, definitely, you know, they blow Ken Adam out of proportion. And I mean, rightly so. Yes, I mean, yes, Ken, Ken Adam right, is responsible right. for the aesthetic, probably more so than Merton was. Um, but uh, it's, I'm, I'm sure that there is a lot that Merton contributed to, behi- to the behind the scenes, making sure that Cubby's vision was preserved the way that they wanted. And Ken Adam followed orders, but added his own little flair. Well, this, this is a question I have for you then, um, knowing more perhaps than I do about it. What exactly is the relationship between a set designer and an art director? I mean, art direction seems to be a big, a, a big title with, with responsibilities, obviously. I think art That's direction. I think art direction, uh, Scott, uh, ha- is 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 the is the overall uh, figurehead, the art director of over all aspects of the production design. So, a set like a set designer is someone who designs specifically the sets, and that's yes. what Ken Adam Adam did. But he also carried on that aesthetic, I guess, into which bled into other parts of the um, of the I physical guess. effects. Mm-hmm. So. Ken Merton oversaw him, but I think all of the planning and dirty work was done by Ken Adam. It's just funny, though, just picking up on what you said about Adams being the guy whose reputation is known as the Bond set designer, because yeah. he would have had his own 
chief to answer to and his own restrictions to work within, obviously given, generated by a guy, Merton in this case, who was himself under pretty strict budgetary requirements and oversaw a lot of different projects, not just the set. So it's funny how some of these names are forgotten and some of them are celebrated when so much collaborative effort comes to make it all possible. Yeah, uh, that is a very good point, especially especially for the the bond uh, the bond uh, films. Mm-hmm. You know, I bet the, the cast parties must be massive. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And George anyway. Lazenby is not invited though. <laughs> well, he wasn't invited to this one. That's for sure. He was. Uh, <laughs> he was still... Get a haircut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, right. Let's let's move on then, shall we? And talk about how this film was received. All right. So how was it received? I, I, as, I, as I mentioned, it did recoup its box office in two weeks. But is there more? Oh, there certainly is. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, b- before I get into that, just another quick question, Josh, for you and or Jeff, if you came across this. In the UK, this was released on the 20th of September 1964 with the premiere in London three days previous. But in the USA, it wasn't released until late December. And many European nations weren't getting it until spring of 1965, May into June. Did you come across any reason as to why this was the case? I don't know. It's always been the thing in Hollywood, though, is I've noticed that like even like big features nowadays, like, for example, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, they're released uh, early in the UK, a couple of we- a week or two early or so in the UK, and then the American audience has like their 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 their, their premiere, and then the European countries get them, and then eventually then the, the the Asian countries get them as well. So it seems like there is some some sort of thing where, to I guess to maximize you know when audiences would be receptive at certain times, the, having something in the UK before the it happens in Canada uh, in North America I should say. Um, it seems to it builds a good word of mouth I, yeah. in that particular way, um, and then you have the big American audience being the official premiere of the film itself, right? Mm-hmm. So that automatically gives it precedence over the others. Um, judging the you know the idea of something taking precedence, something grabbing the highlight in a different premiere date, di- different demographics for different countries, that would be my theory. But I, I had never really researched uh, that in detail. I understand the trend, as you said. Yeah. I just don't yeah. see why there's such a great difference. And as I say, May into June of 1965, that's, there are European countries yeah. that's getting this. Well, I'm curious if there was some kind of like, I mean, I just can't think of it now, but if there was some other large franchise film that they didn't want to maybe try and go against. But I think it would have mm. been, I don't think so, because nothing would have want to go against Bond. You know what it could be? I mean, we're still in the Cold War. Yeah. It could very well be that those European countries could have been, uh, oh, yeah. could, have, could have been satellite states for the Soviet Union. And they don't want American Western yeah, pro- propaganda, so they would probably have to be selectively screened and uh, and edited or changed in a certain way to make it, um, I guess, admissible mm-hmm. to those well, countries and their ideologies. In our last episode, we had a couple of things we needed to fact check. This, oh, this yeah, could be one of them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I think I think that merits a fact check for Maybe sure. Maybe there was some kind of like. like uh, communists like um, what do you call those uh, focus groups and they want to say like so when do you think we should release this well we need to make sure no, this wouldn't happen to us here so yeah. I don't know who knows right <laughs> any, any experts out there listening to this episode 5 of Bond by Numbers write into us at bondbynumbers at don'tyethaveanemailaddress.com and let us know so an answer to your question then Josh from earlier the budget uh, adjusted for inflation was 22.9 million of today's dollars 
22 million. Okay, uh, 24 million is a rough, I guess. Yeah, but that's okay. Uh, domestic box office pulled in 391.2 million, and the worldwide box office was 956.2 million. So what you were saying about its lucrative value is certainly, certainly true. The return on investment for Goldfinger. percent. Four thousand sixty-three percent, making it the second most lucrative Bond film of all time. There you go. The first being, we'll get to it, Doctor No, but we'll get to it. Ah, oh, okay, interesting. Aha. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so yes, this is a film that did boost and explode onto the scene, and it doesn't surprise me to hear what you're saying about its market value and the way that the toys were merchandised and everything started coming quite heavily after this. Could you say that this film had somewhat of a Midas touch? <laughs> you could, and you'd be correct in doing so. A spider's touch. Well, listen, guys, I've got some reviews here to share to get a feel for what the critics thought, uh, both at the time and afterwards. Would you like me to start with something of the time? I would, but I think Absolutely. I think the success of the film is summed up by that Vix commercial with with Oddjob and his wife. <laughs> have you seen that? No, I have not. Go look on YouTube. Oh, man. Go look on it's YouTube. A, that's amazing. It's Oddjob walking down the street and all this stuff going on, and he has a he has a bad cough or a throat or whatever, and he's like karate chopping everything, and <laughs> yeah. he just needs a Vix to settle himself down. And yep. luckily, Mrs. Oddjob has that for him. Yep. What is it's, it? What is it? It's a Vix commercial it's from a, the time. Yes. And it's literally him. Okay, I got it. Here I go. I'm going to play it for us right now. So good. Okay, I see this, yeah. No matter how strong a man is, a cough can still get the upper hand. (laughs) (laughs) Love how the bird flies away. Yes. You know so what? Bond widowed uh, Mrs. Got- Mrs. Oddjob, and we didn't even know it. So this is what I was thinking. Okay. This whole thing could have like so the whole thing with the Delta Nine. I think like we just figured out that it was Vix Forty Four that could have counteracted it. It could have, and then we could have <laughs> fixed everything. Like what would have happened if Bond had just sported a bottle of that in Fort Knox? Well, I think everyone would have a very easy. Would have a, uh, would they would have, have been able to breathe easier. Yeah, <laughs> they would be able, to, be able to breathe easier, yeah. Right, guys, Bosley Crowther writing in the New York Times, the 22nd of December, 1964. Some selected snippets here from our friend, Mr. Crowther. Old 007 is slipping, or rather, his scriptwriters are. They're involving him more and more with gadgets and less and less with girls. This is tediously apparent in Goldfinger, the latest movie adventure of James Bond, the dauntless sleuth of Ian Fleming's detective fiction whom Sean Connery so handsomely portrays. In this third of the Bond screen adventures, Agent 007 of the British SS virtually spurns the lush temptations of voluptuous females in favor of high-powered cars and tricky machines. That's to say he virtually spurns them in comparison to the way he went for them in his previous cinematic conniptions, Dr. No and For Much With Love. In those fantastic fabrications, you may remember he was constantly assailed by an unending flow of luxurious, exotic, and insatiable girls. And being the sort of omnipotent and adaptable fellow he is, 
He did what he could to oblige them in the course of pursuing his sleuthing chores, but in this most gaudy of his outings, the most elaborate and fantastic to date, he manages to bestow his male attentions on only a couple of passing supplicants. One is a pliant little number who expires early, sealed in a skin of gold paint, and the other is a brawny pilot who remarkably resembles gorgeous George. Neither is up to the standard of femininity usually maintained for Mr. Bond. Why this neglect of his love life is difficult to imagine, except that Mr. Bond's off-handed conquests were always open to a certain amount of doubt, a certain amount of skepticism as to how much of a Lothario he actually is. Indeed, they've often intimated a bland contempt for, or at least a slippery spoof of, the whole notion of masculine prowess. One might question whether Bond really likes girls, so maybe his careful scriptwriters have played down that overly amorous side, delicately displacing dolls with automation and beautiful bodies with electronic brains. Anyhow, what they give us in Goldfinger is an excess of science fiction fun, a mess of mechanical melodrama, and a minimum of bedroom farce. It's good fun, all right. Fast and furious, racing hither and yon about the world as 007 pursues the intrigues of a mysterious financier named Goldfinger, who's criminally tampering with the gold reserves of Britain and the United States. Meeting his quarry in a crooked, crooked card game on the terrace of a hotel in Miami Beach, he follows him to a golf club outside London, trails him to a gold refinery in the Swiss Alps, and then is captured by him and flown to America to be, inside an, obser to be an inside observer of a fantastic raid on Fort Knox. En route, the fellow has some lively set-twos, exercises, smashing, ingenuity, and meets that Amazonian pilot whom he conquers after a deadly judo match. As usual, Mr. Connery plays the hero with an insultingly cool, commanding air, providing a great vicarious image for all the panting Walter Mitties in the world. Gert Frobe is aptly fat and feral as the villainous financier, and Honor Blackman is forbiddingly frigid and flashy as the, later's, as the latter's aeronautical accomplice. In lesser roles, Shirley Eaton is delectable as the girl who is quickly painted out, and Harold Sakata is traditionally sinister as a mute oriental who is adept at throwing a razor-brimmed hat. Of course, the high point of the picture is the climactic raid on Fort Knox with, its, uh, with the intent of blowing it up and contaminating its hoard of gold with a nuclear bomb. It's spinningly staged and enacted, drenched in cliffhanging suspense, but somehow, by the time it gets to this point, well, we've had Mr. Bond. Hmm. All right. I can literally smell the stale pipe smoke on this guy's, like, tweed jacket. Well, I tell you, man, maybe it's just because I'm an English teacher and I'm used to marking so many essays, but the, the, his use of alliteration is, is just is overwhelming here. It is. It is. Oh, yeah. He, Bosley Crowther was definitely a good critic, like, in his day. Yeah. But he is also a bit of a dinosaur. Yeah, you can tell opinion. even then. He's... And I think he's way too into the playboy aspect of James yeah, Bond more yeah. so than... The I think the character and and the world that you know that it, that it takes place in. Yeah, I just maybe feel he was part of an unhappy marriage. Like maybe he went to the cinema and, to see chicks, and that's yeah, what he wanted. Well, that's yes, that's what I'm saying here. I'm thinking that he he was like uh, he was really into Bond, and then this kind of was like, oh man, what's with all the gadgets? And he was just like, uh, he was walking kind of like Charlie Brown, like you know, with his head down, wah 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 wah, back to home, and he was like, well. I wanted more girls. Yeah. Well, it's funny, guys, because he's probably of the <clears throat> he probably enjoyed the uh, the ephemeral nature of like the Elvis films, you know, like all yeah. of those sort of beach bimbo type stories, yeah. like the, the yeah. Finicellos and uh, the the Anne Margarets and all that type of stuff. And, yeah. and so he he's coming at this bond. And as you said a few minutes ago, Josh, the bond formula is really etched here. And yes. It's interesting to see some critics grappling with why are we getting this and why are we changing or 
evolving in this way? Why are we moving away from girls right. only and moving yeah. into something else? So uh, I just thought that was an interesting one to select for because it's the New York Times as well. It's not like yeah. some you know backwater newspaper. Right. It is an interesting one to select too because how he talks about the judo match between, as he calls it, a, to the a death-defying judo match, despite deadly, the, yeah. despite the, yeah, despite the those you know those deadly sounding slide noises that the soundtrack makes <laughs> makes um I, I i will discuss and i think we we shall discuss um the implications of that fight between pussy galore and james bond and how it determines the end of the film and not to mention as i'll get into i think the controversy of that scene in particular especially in the modern day mm-hmm. well i i won't stay or linger too long here with the the critical reception but let's just move ahead to the future uh, 1999, Roger Ebert, Chicago Sun-Times. Of all the Bonds, Goldfinger is the best and can stand as a surrogate for the others. If it's not a great film, it is a great entertainment and contains all the elements of the Bond formula that would work again and again. It's also interesting as the link between the more modest first two Bonds and the later big-budget extravaganzas. After this one, producers Albert Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman could be certain that 007 was good for the long run. The Broccoli-Saltzman formula found its lasting form in the making of Goldfinger. The outline was emerging in the first two films, and here it's complete. First, the title sequence, establishing Bond as a sex hound while linking him with a stunt sequence or a spectacular death. Then the summons by M, head of British Secret Service, and the briefing on a villain obsessed by global domination. The flirtation with Moneypenny, the demonstration by Q of new gimmicks invented especially for his next case, then the introduction of the villain, his murderous and bizarre sidekick, his female assistant, accomplice, or mistress. Bond's discovery of the nature of the villain's evil scheme. Bond's capture and the certainty of death. His seduction of the villain's woman, and so on. Leading always to a final scene in which Bond is about to enjoy his victory reward, the sensuous fruits of his latest conquest. Connery has the sleek self-assurance needed for the role, and a gift with deadpan double entendres. But he had something else that none of the others, save perhaps Dalton, could muster. Steel mm. toughness. When his eyes narrowed and his body tensed up, you knew the plane was over and the bloodshed was about to begin. Now that that's selected. I mean, the, the review is a little longer than that, but I, I just thought, you know, coming from Bosley here and then us going to lead into talking about how this film it does very much sketch out the blueprint formula for the Bond films that are so parodied later in other things like Austin Powers and whatnot. Then yeah, yeah, I mean, Ebert's touching about touching on that as well. Uh, anything to say about that before I read you one last I was just going to mention uh, from one of my sources here, it says that in 99, it was actually ranked as the number 70 film uh, for the BFI for oh, yeah. Hobbit films. So the same year. Same year, ranked number 70, did you say? 70, yeah. I was, I was, yeah. Right, well, look, I got uh, a, <clears throat> a short little bit here from a female critic writing three years after Ebert in The Guardian, Ann Bilson who says, very similarly to Ebert, actually, that Goldfinger is, is the best Bond film because it does lay out. It's the first one to lay out that formula without being really self-aware of the formula. Yes. And perhaps, yeah, as, exactly. perhaps as that creative, that creative apex, w- without, too much, um, without too much swimming in its own self-worth, it can maintain a real freshness. Well, I think that's important. I think the fact that it's not... It, it, it was sort of it created sort of um, I guess the way it was filmed is kind of it kind of created those tropes, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't doing them on purpose. Mm-hmm. I think it's where it, exactly what you just said there is. So I think that's why it's important is that it wasn't just going on its own formula. It tried something new, which then created 
a formula. I want to add too uh, from the production um, that the opening sequence that we see in oh, yeah. Mexico or where wherever that is in Latin America. Um, but, now it's but from what I understand, if you're basing off the Fleming novel, that was probably in Mexico. Um, that that was the first time that they we had that a pre teaser sequence that did not involve the main story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's, uh, in fact, exactly what she goes on to say here too. She says the same thing that it uh, it gives us the pre title sequence that would go on to become famous. Yeah, and and I find a lot of films. Um, like sort of espionage and action movies do that too, where it, it kind of gives you a backstory, not just a bond. I'm talking like, you know, like a born identity or something like that. Whereas you'll see the protagonist doing something to show who they are and what their job is, but it's not necessarily related to the actual film itself. Yeah, to, to, to the story in the film. Yeah. Exactly. One of the other things that, uh, that Bilson cites that I quite like in this, short review is Bond's uselessness in the film and I'd like to touch upon that with you when we get there just just how, just how sort of docile the, sec- the, 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 the second third of this film really is and how he, he you know he manages to get both of these sisters killed he spends more time you know uh, criticizing music and, and quaffing about champagne and, and, and he, you know, he, he then becomes a prisoner for a lot of the film. And even Granny O and I talk about that too when we get to the grandmother interview portion of the show. And so there, there, there is something we got to talk about with that too that might make it charming, as she certainly thinks it does. The fact that you see his fallibility here, you see him making mistakes. Yes. And, yeah, for sure. Or, or maybe that's not what you like in a film, and and, and we'll we'll see. Yeah, uh, it goes I, back I've to. Got, I've got another bit to read, but you know what? I'm, I'm just going to skip over it because I feel like it's a bit more of the same. But it's, it's a good letterboxed review by uh, Mike D'Angelo from 2012. If you're keen on checking that out, uh, you can get that online. He rates it three and a half stars. So, we'll yeah, let's, uh, let's just move on. Oh, yeah, sorry, right. Josh. I cut you off, buddy. You have something to say? Oh, I was just going to say that basically the idea of Bond being kind of a prisoner and docile I might go with Guy Hamilton's, you know, vision of Bond being too much of a Superman, and he wanted a supervillain that could overwhelm him and be a challenge for him. So, and really, near in the last half of the film, um, he's trapped, really, and he's trying to work his way out of the situation through various means. So that that could allude to that as well. Um, to go with the the summary of that that opening scene that actually was not really related to the the film itself. I just wanted to say that uh, when you first see Bond in that famous, uh, you know, white tuxedo, I, I kind of feel I got to figure out when it, the song came out. But Marty Robbins wrote a song that basically sums up his outfit called "A White Sports Coat with a Pink Carnation." It does, yeah, that's a good tune. And I, I was thinking that the whole time. I'm like, this song would not go with this film. However, it sums up his outfit perfectly. Yeah, it does. That's a good tune, Marty <laughs> Robbins. It, it is a good song. Yeah, it is a good tune. <laughs> Well, look, that, that sounds as perfect a segue as we're going to get. Yeah, really, it does, actually. That is a great segue. Thanks, Jeff. No worries. So we open in the Republic of Banana, where guards patrol the ground of some complex. But just over the walls are the dimly lit waters of Bananastan's harbor, where a harmless seagull suddenly transforms into Sean Connery, wearing a suit that would make Sterling Archer green with envy. <laughs> Garbed in black, Bond Batmans over the walls, and a glass-jawed guard soon succumbs to his boot in the face, allowing Bond to make a run for one of the silos. Bond accesses the silo with considerable ease, but it's not really a silo. It appears to be a drug lab, Ken Adams-style. Um, Bond spreads the big ex- 
explosive toothpaste across some barrels of something, sets the timer on the detonator and skedaddles. Soon he's back on the other side of the wall and slipping out of his ninja garments into a white dinner tux. He adds a red corsage for further slickness and makes his way to a bodega where his denizens are being entertained by a belly dancer, oblivious to Bond nonchalantly igniting his lighter so he may check the time. A column of explosive flame envelops the frame and the bodega shakes to its foundations and everyone panics. Bond leans against the bar speaking to a single occupant, a local source who informs us, more so than Bond, that the baddies' heroin-flavored bananas have ended their little harvest and that Bond should grab a flight to Miami ASAP. But 007 is completely chill and decides to make it with the dancer, who has retired to her dressing room. She's in the bath when he arrives, but quickly wraps a towel around herself and embraces him. Bond must have had laser eye surgery, though, because he can see the wannabe Banana Republic dictator coming at him in the reflection of the girl's eye. It's a setup. Bond dodges the cudgel meant for him by putting the girl in his place. She's down for the count, but the baddie is swinging fiercely, and it's a knockdown and drag-up fight sequence between the two culminating with the baddie demonstrating why you should never leave appliances plugged in adjacent to water. <laughs> the open titles are creepy and alluring at the same time. Golden painted female flesh with footage from the film projected across various body parts synced with brassy ballsy theme song by Shirley Bassey. It is so simplistic but overly done in tone and style that it jazzes you up for what's to come. And speaking of jazz, Barry's score roars to life with swank and brass and sexy sax as we pan down from the Miami Beach skyline to the Fountain Blow Hotel just as Felix Leiter's vehicle pulls into the parking lot. We get more fantastic aerial photography, tracking the bird's eye view of the hotel as a diver springs for the diving board into the pool and jackknifes underwater, framed by a glass window to which we see Felix Leiter turning away from as he moves through the hotel lobby, passes an ice rink, and into the pool area. He finds Bond getting a massage by Margaret Nolan's dink, but she is soon reduced to a non-entity with a single butt slap. <sighs> Those were the days. Not... Bond's Don Drapery notwithstanding, there is a reason why M put him up in this hotel, and Felix Leiter of the CIA, once again recasted, informs him that they believe millionaire and gold hoarder Ulrich Goldfinger is cheating the American businessman at Gin Rummy just 10 feet away. They have a hunch Goldfinger is cheating the businessman and want Bond to use his bondness, his certain je ne sais quoi, to puzzle it out. All systems go for 007 Bot. He zeroes in on the source of Goldfinger's success his hotel room, where on its balcony, his hired help, Jill Masterson, using a pair of binoculars and a microphone, is giving away the American's hand. Bond busts Goldfinger's eardrum for the sharp pinch up to the microphone and tells him to actually play the game. Turns out, without cheating, Goldfinger sucks at Jim Rummy. All in day's work for 007, including dining and bedding Jill Masterson back in his hotel room. After, identif after identifying with the President of the United States and some unilateral issues, Bond reveals he is rather OCD about how he likes his Bollinger and then pisses off the youthful audience by telling them the Beatles suck. You know you're a badass win. But karma police come for Bond for that remark with a swift karate chop to the back of his head. Bond out, Bond's out cold and Goldfinger and his henchmen have some depraved fun. When he wakes, he finds Jill very dead, covered with gold paint. Skin suffocation, he tells M back in Westminster. No such thing according to science, though. But M is more pissed that Bond let Goldfinger go. He and Bond attend a dinner with the head of the Bank of England, who believes Goldfinger is smuggling gold. After Bond shows off his knowledge of cognac to his superior's disdain, the bank dude offers Bond the perfect bait. Nazi gold for the German gold hoarder. Typical. The Nazi bullion is added on as a mission expense, but nothing will be expensive for M MI6 than the dicked-out Aston Martin DB5 with his twin machine guns, revolving license plates, proto-GPS tracking, with mother and baby size tracking devices included, 
And, of course, the ejector seat. Despite all the extra lines that he was given, Q is not very excited to see 007, who seems to have a penchant for damaging his tech in the field. So Q is more than happy to drone on about all these cool things. It's the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Bond arrives at Stoke Park Golf Club, turned out it's owned by Goldfinger, with his Aston golf clubs and tracking devices as he goes 18 holes with the big bad. Goldfinger's caddy is a short, barrel-chested Korean dude dressed like a butler with a top hat named Oddjob. Hardly a hole has been played when Goldfinger reveals he knows Bond was the guy that effed him over in Miami and wants to know his purpose. But Bond flashes the Nazi gold bullion, quite subtly I may add, by dropping it naked as a babe on the green. Goldfinger, who would be the most messed up person to ever appear on Hoarders, takes the offered bait and tries to cheat Bond at golf. Now that they're playing skins with freaking Nazi gold. <laughs> Bond and his, old ca- and his own caddy figure out his scheme, though, and his gold Goldfinger is snatched from the jaws of victory when Bond switches a real ball for another, causing Goldfinger to forfeit the match. Goldfinger doesn't allow Bond to admire his golden-laden Rolls Royce for long, though. Oddjob demonstrates a deadly use of a top hat by de- decapitating a nearby statue, and a deadly use of his own hands by crushing a golf ball. I guess they don't have the titanium cores back then. Mm-hmm. Hint, hint, Goldfinger says with a demonstration in a few words. Honestly, he's not very subtle. Bond takes Goldfinger's check happily, knowing that the tracking device he placed in the boot is pinging away. Goldfinger, his chauffeur, odd job, and his Rolls Royce and Toad darts across the channel with Bond in pursuit, his proto-GPS allowing him to keep some distance as he follows Goldfinger to Geneva. As Goldfinger makes his roadside stop for some apples, Bond is harassed by a girl in a convertible, honking away until he lets her pass. Tempted, he decides to continue his pursuit of Goldfinger and gains a roadside advantage several hundred feet above Goldfinger's produce shopping, fruit shopping, whatever. But we see a couple of hundred feet above Bond, the girl in the convertible, aiming her rifle at Bond? Goldfinger? We get the answer when the bullet misses Bond by an inch and Goldfinger is soon off. Bond decides to make the girl his quarry, tears apart her wheels Ben-Hur style, thanks to Q's gadgetry. Both her front and back driver's side tires torn up and she curms into a dish which ends up being the lightest crash in recent recorded history. Seriously, it's like she merely pumped the brakes. Bond tries to play Good Samaritan with her, but she'll have none of it. He convinces her to take her to the nearest garage and take her on as a passenger, including her luggage, a rectangular-shaped case. It's her ice skates, apparently. Yeah, okay. Bond plays along with... ice skates ever. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. Bond plays along with Tilly Soames, or TM, according to the case that houses her, quote-unquote, ice skates. A weak conversation develops, but it quickly ends with the best segue ever. Oh, look, there's a garage. Bond offers to drive her to a hotel where she can await the results of the towing and repair, but brushes him off. Bond turns the radar back on and heads after Goldfinger. He catches up with the megalomaniacal gold hoarder at Oric Enterprises, just outside of Geneva. He dons his archer gear and penetrates the facility, seeking for himself the Rolls Royce, and, and sees how it's been smug- smuggling the gold out of England. Its golden body broken down into pure gold. Bond overhears Goldfinger playing an exposition bot to whatever what appears to be a scientist from Red China. The factory is also crawling with Korean mercenaries. Goldfinger and the Chinese scientists go on about something called Operation Grand Slam. Bond slips out unnoticed, content with the knowledge that he has so far as he waits to cover more in the wooded glade surrounding the factory. He catches Tilly Soames again, about to shoot someone with her sniper rifle. So much for ice skates. So much for silly tome, sil- Tilly Soames, too. Bond bounces on her, forcing the mouth of her rifle to hit a security tripwire that alerts Goldfinger's Koreans. It's funny, without his intervention, she might have gotten away with it, leaving out the fact that she might still miss him regardless. She rails at Bond for ruining her chance to avenge her sister. 
Turns out TM equals Tilly Masterson. She's Jill's sister, and she wants revenge. It also turns out that their parents were very imaginative. Till and Jill? Really? What they really should have named their kid is Chill. Oh, well. The Koreans <laughs> arrive, and Bond and Tilly race to Bond's parked Aston Martin, and a shootout between Bond and the Korean escalates into a car chase through the forest-lined roadway. Here we get a demonstration of all the features of the Aston Martin DB5, and it's a doozy of a commercial. It's only missing a voiceover. Oil slicks, bulletproof rear screen are on display until they're forced off the road in a standoff. Oddjob shows up until he runs for the woods, and it's dispatched by his flying top hat. Bond seemingly abandons his mission to check out the girl, but she's dead, her, her head still attached miraculously to her body. I guess after taking out that statue, Oddjob needed to take his cap to a whetstone. They load Bond into his DB5 this time as a hostage and at gunpoint order him to drive back to Oric Enterprises. A kindly old Swiss woman opens the gate for the convoy. Bond finally gets to try out the director seat he was going on about and success. He spins around the surprise convoy before his passenger hits the ground, dodging a salvo of machine gun fire from the old lady. Yeesh. Bond roars down an alleyway between two of the factory's buildings. And there is another chase, and it's very cool, but Bond is helpless against his greatest adversary, a mirror. His car is some, t- is some tough, though, not exploding as they tend to in these movies as he goes through a brick wall. Bond awakes in that classic pose, spread eagle on a slab of gold with a super laser to destroy Metropolis that would make Golden Age Lex Luthor proud. Goldfinger is happy to watch this annoying insect get castrated by a laser beam, and we get that iconic back and forth between the two until Goldfinger realizes that Bond knows too much about the operation, and they're not, and they're not sure how much he has told his superiors. Goldfinger would have stayed in the room while Bond got bisected by the laser beam, and there would be no way for Bond to escape it. Goldfinger has subverted the cliché before the cliché even existed. Is that post-modernity or pre-modernity? I don't know anymore. So before you can say sharks with laser beams, Goldfinger lets Bond live, and it's believable, okay, maybe debatable, that he would do so. Goldfinger's seemingly Eurotrash assistant Kish then drugs Bond with a tranquilizer dart, and Bond wakes up to pussy galore. No, that's her actual name. You see, back then, pussy was hip talk for a cool cat or a pussy cat. It didn't really have strong, lewd contentions because people were still sexually repressed back then. <laughs> or so, that's how I see it. I must be dreaming, says Bond to pussy, the beautiful blonde British citizen and pilot of Oric Goldfinger. Think of her as Amelia Earhart with cleavage with a heavy smoker's voice. <laughs> they are flying over Newfoundland. Bonus points for Newfoundland name drop. Newfoundland, though, is not how you pronounce it. Yes, bye. After some ridiculous peephole spy games with Bond and the Korean flight attendant, the plane lands in Kentucky and Bond bears witness to Pussy Galore's flying circus, her fleet of private planes flown by a sisterhood of pilots dressed like a Jack Kirby wet dream. (laughs) Bond is brought to Oryx Stud where where he is jailed in the basement. Meanwhile, Goldfinger has his meeting with the five families, only this time he kills Battaglia and Barzini before the baptism. We are forced to cringe through the acting and dialogue of these American gangster cliches for several minutes as Goldfinger in his rumpus room reveals the deets of Operation Grand Slam. You know you're all in for an operation when you plan it over 10 years and develop an elaborate hydraulic three-dimensional map of Fort Knox that rises from the very ceiling in order to impress a bunch of Edward G. Robinson wannabes. But Goldfinger's over-the-top touch is Bond's game. He easily seduces one of the Koreans to open his cell door and literally gets the drop on the poor guy. I know he didn't really seduce him, but it could be looked at that way. Um, It's a great scene, though. Uh, Temporarily liberating Bond manages to locate the control room to Goldfinger's elaborate hydraulics and peers through the windows of Fort Knox as Goldfinger reveals his crime de la crime. Nerve gas. Fort Knox. Steal the gold. Grabbing a piece of full scat from the control room, he... 
he opens up the bottom of his shoe to reveal the baby tracking device and writes out the necessary facts. Wrapping the tracker up in the paper, he slips in his pocket, but is soon flat on his ass thanks to pussy galore. Meanwhile, one of the gangsters, Solo, who helped the laser be smuggled into the country, wants no part of the deal. Goldfinger excuses himself and with a flick of the switch from Kish down below, traps the other gangsters in the rumpus room and gasses them with the deadly toxin. Goldfinger escorts Solo to his car, offering an odd job to drive him back to the airport. Pussy brings Bond over to Goldfinger, allowing Bond a moment to pin the tracker and message on Solo's person. Once Solo's share of gold is loaded into the back of the car, Solo takes off and Felix Leiter and his partner chase the car around Kentucky. But Oddjob manages to lose them, pulling over to whack Solo and drive his vehicle, body, and gold, included, to a scrapyard where everything is broken down into a cube. Oddjob returns with the cube and Goldfinger and Kish set about getting the gold back from the wreckage. Meanwhile, Leiter has lost contact with Bond's signal. He returns to Oryx's stud. Picking up that CIA may be watching Bond, Goldfinger having treated Bond to mint juleps and revealing that he is not going to remove the gold but irradiate it, gets pussy to make Bond look like he is quite uncomfortable. Quite comfortable, sorry. So this leaves Bond with only one option. Turn this probably lesbian or at least bisexual woman to the side of good in order to prevent the nerve gas from killing thousands of people. How does he do this, though? The answer is um, something very close to rape. Uh, Pussy has managed to get Bond in full view of his CIA chums and they, as they enter a barn, but the illusion is all she will offer, and Bond attempts to seduce her, but she backflips him. Bond returns the favor, however, and despite her skills, he is on top of her forcing her to submit. Yeah, it's sketchy stuff. But without it, those nerve canisters would never have been changed to knock out gas, and she would now be converted to the side of good by the magic penis, uh, <laughs> by Bond's magic penis, um, and gotten the message off to Felix Leiter. Yay, good guys, I guess? The operation doesn't go as planned. I mean, it's elaborate and monumental in his undertaking as Barry's action cues soar as the flying circus crop dust Fort Knox with nerve gas. Soldiers and civilians crumble as they fly by, leading the way for Goldfinger's convoy of army jeeps and ambulances to make its way through the town and to the gates of the gold repository. Cue the Luther special doing its thing, cutting through the steel, allowing the Korean agents to pull down the gate. The vault is soon hacked, and the dirty bomb provided by the Chinese scientist, who we now know as Dr. Ling, is housed in large rectangular container on wheels. The timer is activated, and Bond is handcuffed to the device, and only Kish has the key, snug in the breast pocket of his faux army uniform. The, the bomb and Bond are then placed onto the elevator and sent to the vault floor. Yes, everything is going to plan, according to Goldfinger, but then we jump to Felix Leiter in a military officer's sedan suddenly coming to life after all that nerve gas. Yes, the morally murky incident that occurred before this scene seems to have worked. The nerve gas canisters were switched with a knockout gas of some kind, and Felix, the brigadier general, and his men go into action. It all falls apart for Goldfinger having disguised himself as an army general after being airlifted to the site by Pussy Galore in a whirlybird. The U.S. Army reaches the gates of Fort Knox, and epic firefight ensues between the U.S. Army commandos and the Korean mercenaries. Goldfinger wastes Ling with his golden revolver and deceives a squad of soldiers enough to slip by and then gun them down in the back thus reinforcing his Koreans. Goldfinger seals the vault before escaping. Kish, not a believer apparently, is trying to get out of the sealed vault, but Oddjob, a believer, or just dumb, forces Kish to do an Olympic dive off the upper level to the vault floor below. Bond sees Kish's body and eyes the breast pocket. He starts to drag the bomb across the vault floor, and Oddjob, okay, not that dumb, figures out Bond's way of thinking and begins rushing down the levels while Bond frantically reaches Kish's body and grasps for the key. He gets it, but Oddjob is almost there. Unlocking himself in time, we get an epic showdown between Bond and Oddjob, as bon, Oddjob throwing Bond around a lot, toying with him. A fatal mistake, when a throw of his hat severs some wire cable, Bond maneuvers Oddjob to throw his hat at him again. Bond, as he planned, dodges a hat, which cuts into the bars behind him. 
Oddjob still in plane with his food mode, saunters over to retrieve his hat from the f- bars. But Bond dives to the bars in the corners, seizing the live wire and pressing it against the bars, timing for the very moment Oddjob retrieves his hat. Oddjob is resoundingly electrocuted. Meanwhile, the t- tide is turned as the U.S. forces are saved by a plucky soldier who makes a run for the control room and opens the vault. The Koreans double back into the vault, firing as the Yanks approach whilst Bond attempts to break open the bomb with two gold bars. The Koreans lose their ground and Army and CIA head for the bottom level. Their nuclear specialists presumably arriving at the nick of time to stop the bomb at aptly 007. Ha! Our denouement is Bond being treated to a visit to the White House courtesy of the president's private plane. He boards reluctantly, offering farewells to Felix and the brigadier. Bond is skybound, making himself comfortable when suddenly Goldfinger, still in army garb, appears from behind. Cut to the crew of the airplane bounding gang inside the hangar. Goldfinger has his golden gun, but still the megalomaniacal blowhard that he is explains to Bond that Pussy is flying the plane and is going to deal with her soon, which gives Bond ample time to make a grab for the gun. There's a struggle, and a gun is fired, defenestrating a window and depressurizing the cabin. Goldfinger, despite his girth, demonstrates what we see in those flight manuals and what to do in an emergency, and we relish him being sucked out the window to his death. Bond makes it to the cockpit, and he and Pussy are unable to right the plane. Meanwhile, Felix and the Brigadier are are at air traffic control, watching this all play out. A second blip appears as the first one disappears. We then see Bond and Pussy have landed via parachute. Pussy spots a search helicopter and waves, but Bond grabs her, and they make out beneath the canvas. The end. The end. Credits roll. Nice work, buddy. Thank you. Well, there we are then. That's the the master strokes of the plot of Goldfinger. And now it's uh, just down to us to share some thoughts, some opinions. Let's spend uh, a little while on this, shall we, guys? Sounds good to me. All right, well done, BFG, taking us through that. Let's now talk about Goldfinger. Uh, Guys, what do you think of this opening sequence? Because as you said a while ago, Josh, this is the first pre-title sequence, at least in its... Well, not technically, of course, but it's the first one that has nothing to do with the plot. Yes. So how do we feel about this? I I thought it was a blast. Yeah, it was really fun. Uh, I think it was neat just to see sort of Bond... It's kind of like you're a fly on the wall or maybe a listening device or a video device from some, you know, uh, evil villains, um, technical whatever. (laughs) Um, And uh, we get to see Bond in action. Uh, And it's really neat to see him in his his fancy black outfit um, doing what he does best. I think what we're trying to say is you see him as an operative. Sorry, yeah. Mm -hmm. Basically, yes. Basically, short – long story short, as you see Bond as an operative – um, for the first time, where it's not necessarily immediately right into the film, you get to see him do his his op his operations. Which yeah, is neat. yeah, and it is. I, I agree with you guys. I really like it too. It's it's fun. Uh, but I do have a question, okay, which I wrote down while while I was watching this, and I know it's it's just supposed to be like you know a nondescript banana republic, right? But and I think that's probably a literal aping of, of what's going on politically in the world, isn't it? Because at the time, there's all sorts of little revolutions propping yeah. up. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Cuba and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, but, but it's uh, very fresh. Yep. Is there any indication? Uh, I mean, could a more could a, could a more cognizant viewer spot where they are supposed to be? Or is it really just supposed to be backdrop? You know, I, I rewatched part of the movie last night okay. before I went to bed. And I noticed in that scene in, in the in the bodega, there's posters for Quantana in the background. Okay. Now Quintana Roo 
uh, is the state in which uh, the, the Yucatan Peninsula, totally Cancun, Mexico. is in. Mm-hmm. So it's very possible that that could have been Mexico. Okay. I'm supposed, maybe, I suppose they didn't, want to, they didn't want to draw attention to it. Right. That's observant. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's someone, uh, you know, a listener at home now screaming in. If yes. you know, by all means, uh, correct us, you know. But, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I did like the line, at least he won't be using heroin-flavored bananas to finance revolutions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a... I also like how these poor revolutionaries are, uni- using, are trying to use heroin with, to finance their – in bananas to finance revolutions. I uh, have a Ken Adams-style missile silo. Right? <laughs> yeah. And are, are not yet educated enough, perhaps because of their poverty, to understand electrical items shouldn't, as you say, go next to the bathtub. Right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So there's all sorts of interesting things going on here. I, I do love I love the cut though that finishes off this and leads into the title song and that and that sort of brash beginning of the 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 Bassy song. I really like the cut, you know, where he, he walks out yeah. and shuts the door and then you get that smash shocking. of brass, yeah. Yeah. It's good. Oh, it's I mean that that's one of the best actually. It's one of the best transitions that cut and I, I would agree with. You. Yeah, I, I was saying absolutely. that I call I call this credit sequence a flashback. Oh, a flashback. Yes, because I, it's done on it's, a person's flesh. Tis, and it goes it goes from flesh to flesh. It does, in a sense. It's always, yeah, that's right. What do you think of Connery's hair, by the way, in this? Connery's Terrible. hair. It, it well, it's the most unbelievable thing. Like, how does it stay? Yeah. How does it stay good? The biggest, I think, the biggest piece of fiction in this entire film is his hairpiece. Well, my grandmother's got a comment on our grandmother's got a comment on that hair. Okay, it's coming. Okay, okay, okay. I'd well, like to hear. I'd like to hear the part. <laughs> oh, oh, that was that was just totally out of the out of the sky, wasn't it? That one. We but, can just, we can just come over that comment. But but did his hair deserve it? <laughs> uh, See what I did? Josh? See what I did? Ah, gosh. We're going to be slow going through this story, I tell you, boys, if this is what we're up against. <laughs> Wait till we start talking about uh, Pussy Galore, so... Oh, <laughs> no, but the the opening sequence is really good, isn't it? it, it oh, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, that- a little point, guys, on the, the, the white sports coat and the red carnation, as it were. <gasps> there are six outfits, actually, in this entire film that Connery wears. Connery looks really good in this film. Oh, yeah. he really does. He's very, very, very well dressed. Really smart. All these outfits are great. But did you know that these outfits, designed for him by Anthony Sinclair, were actually worn earlier at Pinewood Studios for a film called Woman of Straw? No. no every every one of them. These six outfits were shared. There were minor variations uh, made. Sometimes he didn't have a waistcoat on, for example, with the uh, the charcoal flannel suit that he wore towards the end. The the Barleycomb uh, hacking jacket that he wore didn't have the waistcoat in one scene that he did in the other film. This ivory dinner jacket, for example, that we all like so much and has become so iconic uh, in, in, in this pre-title sequence was the same one worn in Woman of Straw, only instead of the red carnation, there was a kind of like a, a linen fold uh, kerchief in his top pocket. So it really dressed it differently. The houndstooth suit, everything like these six outfits that are so iconic, particularly the the gray Glenn check suit that he's in most of the film here as a prisoner. That suit with waistcoat is the same one in Woman of Straw without waistcoat, and it looks totally different. So both were filmed at Pinewood, and both were 
using Anthony Sinclair suits because Connery was in Woman of Straw and they just used the same things. Now, whether that was a budgetary decision to just share the cost of costume, one of these things that could help bring down the cost, maybe. You know, when your domestic budget for a film is just about two million at the time, you know, uh, contemporary, two million, I guess a couple thousand on suits will make a difference, right? They definitely will. Oh, yeah. And that, that could be Guy Hamilton cutting corners and getting the picture made, right? Just mm-hmm. uh, using what they can to, to get things done. And they, and they did it, I mean, with the plum. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, I I wonder how much of that is translated as well, guys, that Connery had already worn this clothes once and he knew what he needed to do to carry himself in it and to look good. It's very possible. That's a great little uh, nugget of trivia there. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, cool. It's, yeah, like, uh, I was interested to read about that. It's, sure. it's like his good acting clothes. <laughs> hey, let's yeah. play. Let's play a game, guys. Let's play a game. Okay, I will. Okay. I'll mention the suit. You tell me what scene it comes from. Um, oh, okay, you're testing our uh, sartorial mm-hmm. knowledge. Um, or your knowledge of colors and can you match them to the scenes in the film? Cool. Okay, so we've already covered the ivory dinner jacket, right? Yes. Yes. Brown houndstooth suit. Uh, Kentucky, like. Uh, he, it's not when he was waiting to play golf, though, right? He was wearing a golf. He was just wearing a purple golf shirt at that point. No. Well, that's what he wore when he was golfing, which is also a really cool look. Color looks good on him, doesn't it? But yeah. the, the only thing is, I didn't like the fact he was wearing like like dress pants slash slacks playing golf. I was like, come on, man! You're not going to have Sean Connery as James Bond dress up like Goldfinger. Goldfinger had no, no, had, had, had to play. The the uh, <laughs> he had the the unfortunateness yeah. to look like a, a golfer of the times. No, no, I, I, I. It's almost like, like Rodney Dangerfield and Caddyshack well, the way he was dressed. Yeah, I mean, I know that he's not gonna. <laughs> like, I know this is like what I'm gonna reference for a golf wear. The person is obviously one deceased and two way after this. But I I wasn't expecting them to dress him up like Payne Stewart. Thank God. But uh, you know, <laughs> I was expecting something more than like black dress pants. I saw it was funny. <laughs> well. Uh, he wore in that scene, the the golf scene, the uh, that, that was him in the hacking jacket and the Calvary twill trousers. Ah, mm. trousers, okay, trousers. They're twill. So yeah. the other one was that what he was wearing in Geneva? Uh, the yes, the houndstooth suits. What he was wearing in Geneva, yeah. Right. Oh, okay, okay. I also did like his little uh, his fedora that he had golfing as well. Like that yeah, was good. The little the black Slazenger hat or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. It was good. Okay, try this one. Try this one. Uh, the blue herringbone suit. Would that be his, his dinner at the uh, at the Bank of England? No, that was the brown houndstooth. Oh. oh, okay. No, the blue herringbone was worn in the Q scene. Oh, oh right. yeah, of course, yes. Okay, yeah. yes. Yeah. And what about the charcoal flannel? Mm, tricky one there. Charcoal flannel? Uh-huh. Can I phone a friend? Nope. Yeah, J- yeah. Josh is your friend. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not being a very good friend right now. Let me just Skype him. No. Uh, yeah. He wore that, guys, at the end of the film on the plane en route to meet the president. Oh. Uh, yes. Okay. Mm. Yep. And, of course, the gray three-piece we've already discussed. He wore that for a lot, that check suit. Yeah, in, 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 in Kentucky and uh, right. in yeah. Fort Knox. Yeah. Right. Anyway, uh, I didn't do that without any help, of course. Um, great, <laughs> great, great website, actually. You should check it out. It's uh, the Suits of James Bond. Tells you all about the designers and tells you about you know what the actors were wearing, and uh, it's really, really a good site. And that, oh, that, that is a good yeah. site. 
That would be cool. Yeah, it that's is cool. cool. That is cool. We'll have, check, we'll have to check that out for sure. But Brush one of the things I learned... You can pass your test next time around. You can, yeah. And it was a little unfair for me to pitch it on you like that. But one of the you're cool things... You're You're all about so, pop yeah, quizzes. Yeah, you love quizzes. <laughs> I learned about Woman of Straw is that um, <clears throat> some people mistakenly take shots from that film thinking that they're shots from Goldfinger when they're doing press or when they're doing model shots and things like that. And they're not. Like it's a misrepresentation because right. of the costumery, you know? Interesting. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting and we didn't do it for Pierce. We probably should have, but you know, we're growing as we, as we do this show. We didn't talk about Dalton's uh, Taylor, but more Taylor, sure. uh, Morris Taylor, uh, Connery's Taylor. They're all very different. You know, we did talk about the Taylor a little bit in the last one. Cause Lazenby went and picked up a suit from Connery's Taylor at the time, didn't he? Right. So, yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll try to bring that kind of stuff in as we find it, as we discover it. But let's get back to the film. Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. How do we feel, guys? This is an iconic song, but should it be? It's pretty awesome. Well, I, I would say yes, it should be. Uh, there's so much character in the song. There's also nice little uh, nuggets of uh, the actual production of it as well. Um, but I would say her voice and just how it, it works so well. Mm-hmm. It just works so well with it. I, I said it had a bassy, uh, bassy boost, but <laughs> but no, it was it was it was quite good. And I think it's probably one of the most, other than um, what was the other one there? Uh, I think that's probably one of the most iconic songs for uh, out there. I mean, I, it was so it, it was so good that she ended up, you know, also doing the song for Diamonds Are Forever and yeah. Moonraker. Mm -hmm. Well, my question then, I guess, iconic is. It, it's kind of a misnomer because, of course, it is an iconic song. It's based on song. nostalgia, not, yes. not, okay, not, not, not actual no. object objectivity. Yeah. Do we think it is one of the best songs? We've seen several, well, we've seen four now, four songs. If you include the Louis Armstrong song, we've got four okay. songs that we've seen. Golden Eye, The Living Daylights, uh, Goldfinger, and Louis Armstrong. Is this beyond and above those in terms of its I quality? Um, I, it's definitely in my top five. I'm not know yeah. what particular order, but yes. it's not my favorite Bond song per se. But I think you know tastes will vary on that, right? And what type mm -hmm. of music that you like. Uh -huh. um, incidentally, did you listen to Anthony Newley's original track of uh, Goldfinger? No, I didn't hear him singing it. No, it's actually not. It's, it's actually not. Good. It's not bad. Like yeah. it's a little subtle. It's a little subtler and not as you know and, and how it was done but it is kind of creepy and would match well with the, with the the visuals in an eerie way yeah. but I, I think the, the Shirley Bassey was what the film needed and I think it goes with the Barry score and how brassy and American you know that the that, that the film is um, in, in, in that light so I think in the end it works very well with the film and it works well with the score uh, that and because you know it's been around for so long that it's hard to look at it objectively um, it is kind of over the top, I guess you could say, and it's definitely the Bond song that is probably that's probably the the template for so many parodies yeah. of James Bond yeah. and what the James Bond song should sound like. Yeah. Um, but I think every Bond film offers a different, uh, you know, tune that um, either you like or dislike. So um, I think Shirley Bassey um, song, I guess you could say. You, you it toes the line. It toes the line in the sense where, um, 
you either I don't think people hate it, but no. there are people who probably aren't fan, huge fans of it. But there's also a lot of people that like it too. I think this comes down to like what we were saying is how this kind of this film Goldeneye kind of creates. <laughs> Pardon like, me, gentlemen. Sorry. No, it's okay. That's okay. And thank you, Jeff, for putting me out of my misery. I no, appreciate no, no. that. No, no. <laughs> what I, what I'm saying is is how we were talking about how Goldeneye really kind of transcends that style mm-hmm. for for these kind of films is that especially even with the song is that that's where again you get the tropes out of this style of a song too right going forward so yeah. it's almost like yeah. the formula of song like every again everything in this film kind of look, look at gold look at uh, look at Austin Powers gold member it's a joke on that too right all these things with different films going on going forward from goldfinger they're uh, they kind of create their own uh, trope, I guess, out of it, if you will, if that's the right word. And so Shirley Bassey's song is great, and it it helps with it helps with the film. It might not be the best, I guess we could argue that, but I, for what it is and for the film, it works. Okay, well, let's let's move away from that then. I I think it's good just to get you know get some opinions on it because sure. we're separate we're separated so very far from not just its its release but even its popular acclaim. You know, as you said, right. as we all said, this this existed before we knew anything of it. So yeah, exactly. Trying you to look at it objectively. Yeah, you sounded very like tight lipped uh, when we were discussing it and whatnot about you know that once we said that we know that is good and whatnot. What do you think of the song? Yeah, what do you think? I like it. I like Goldfinger. I think it is a song. It's grown on me. I, I think right. when I first heard it, I found yeah. it quite, quite loud and ostentatious and uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, well, it's ballsy, and that's okay, and that's all right. But it kind of fits the character almost in in a way of being ostentatious and gouty and you know tacky yeah. in, in, in in its way. It's grown on me, and it's a top ten song for me for sure. Uh, I I don't I don't fall into the camp. Josh, not when we did our musical look at all the scores years ago. I, I didn't then, and I still don't fall into the camp that thinks this is one of the best Bond songs. But I appreciate why people feel like it is, because it's such a template for the, the character that's and the it. model. That's yeah. it. That's all about the template. I think yeah. I think a, a large amount of that song being part of the template is what makes it what it is. Particularly on that a big note, you know? I mean, her vocal is great. Yeah. It, it's almost angry and desperate here towards the end of it, you know? She's she's really pushing it. She is, I want to yeah. point, too, is that I thought watching the end credits again, it's so eerie because you just see the girl's face and the end credits, and it's like, and she's, she looks like she's dead, basically. Right. And I don't know. There's just something really creepy about that. Because she's clear, clearly alive, or, or or so, in the opening song titles, but in the end, the golden girl is dead, and it's just there's there's something kind of really sad about that. Does anyone feel that way? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not really sad about it, but it does. And, but I, I see where you're coming from. <laughs> like, yeah. it, or it, or it maybe sleeping. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I think that maybe, could, that, that's maybe she uh, not. Actually, I'm gonna maybe, put in maybe another. Maybe she uh, nodded <laughs> off uh, halfway through the film. I'm gonna throw in another Beatles reference. Um, Golden Slumbers. Uh, it's over my head. Oh, it's actually on Abbey Road. So, uh, yeah. well, the, the idea of slumbering is is quite accurate because I think in stylistically trying to suggest that Bond's returning again, as he will in Thunderball, the idea of like the the sleeping, you know, figure. Yeah. This is a stretch, though. This is a stretch. It definitely is. We'll yeah. move on past that, though. Yeah, let, let's move on past that, shall we? Uh, so, okay, yeah, we, we've got let's the Miami stuff. And we get this great stuff in Miami. I, I love the opening shot, you know. Yeah. I love, the, 
the guy diving in and then we get the underwater cut i mean all that stuff's really cool really deliberately big in that area and that environment up because it's the first time we've been properly to america i think yeah actually in the films in the films yeah because yeah and even even in dr no they they don't go to the states in, in that film and it's interesting how you go from and one thing i wanted to mention about that tracking shot and just how amazing it was is that that style, the way that was filmed, I would say if you look at uh, shows like um, Miami Vice, which is, you know, 20 years later, um, so that, quite that style, similar. it's very similar. Like, I mean, obviously, I don't know if they're necessarily taking a Bond look to it, but if you look at how a lot of shows that are filmed in Miami, which is a very popular locale to film in now, um, that's how they film it. Right, it's like that yeah. kind of CSI cutaway, CSI Miami, whatever show. Burn notice, burn notice, all those kind of shows, like you know, Miami Vice, which was kind of the first one, I guess. Um, fact checkers could take a look at that. There might be other Miami shows before that, but that style of filming um, Miami in that strip is, I would say, it's iconic. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm using that term too much, but um, but it, it's a really neat. It's way. hard not to with this movie. It, it's true, but it's a it's a nice way of of bringing the audience. And sort of getting them uh, immersed. And that's also a joke with jumping into the pool there. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the great things about the Bond films, though, generally. You can count on them for great establishing shots, can't you? Like for your your settings and your change of settings. And normally that filters nicely into how music also operates because Barry isn't alone, but Barry really well, or sorry, very skillfully uh, wove into his writing or to his to his music, the the palette of the place, you know, wherever they were. If it was yes. jazzy, if it was jazzy as it is here, if it was kind of uh, casino like, if it yep. was circus like, if it was oriental, whatever it happened to be, these establishing shots were often matched with a uh, a rather believable, or even even if it wasn't believable, a stereotypical your travelogue type music, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that became part of the formula too, I think, which is one of the things that the later films haven't done as much because they're not going for that sort of feel and tone. Right. Yeah, I know. I go, to me, I always feel like a proper Bond film. You know where they are and you feel like – and you can smell where he is yeah, you know, in the locales. Exactly. I find a lot of Bond films nowadays, the locales is just sort of something as a checklist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We got the exotic locale. Matt, we'll just move yeah, on and go. have a highly cut – like yeah. cut, highly edited action sequence instead uh-huh. seems to be the – I find like the yeah. Craig films, with the exception of probably maybe Casino Royale and Skyfall, don't uh, really dig into their vaca- into their locations very much. Yeah, exactly. No, I agree. I agree. So Miami stuff was it was cut it was shot though with inserts, wasn't it, from Pinewood? Yeah, you can and, tell too. Yeah, it's like why is there why do they need a green screen? You know, for the Miami pool area. Like I just didn't understand that. But then when you realize in the production that Connery couldn't film those scenes in Miami itself, they had to splice everything together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what do you think then of uh, Goldfinger's appearance uh, when, when well, he first comes down the steps and we're watching him? When you first see him, I guess as a villain, when the first time you watch the movie, you're like, "Really, this is Goldfinger? Like, him? It's like him? You know what I mean? It's like like this this like kind of like harmless looking, you know, tubby German guy." Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, he looks he looks like uh, like a guy who thinks he's the best, uh, you know, hunter. Like he he hunts in a, some kind of like in the Black Forest or something in Germany. I tell, you, I tell you what I thought, and it's it's just a product of the times. But imagine a fatter Stuart from The Big Bang Theory. 
And I, I see that actor, Kevin Sussman, I, I see him in that role. If he, you know, if he had to play like a, a biopic of this guy as a, as a younger man, maybe before he put on the weight, I, I don't know why his face just strikes me as that. I don't know. I think he, if you, if you, if you consider uh, Canadian politics, he kind of looks like premier Rob Ford of Ontario. Yeah. Or- I think actually that he looks more like Ford than he does the guy that I picture. Oh yeah. I think but you're you right. Wanted- go into the success of Goldfinger as a villain. I mean, I think it's the banality of the way that he looks. It's that banality of evil. Yeah. Which they exactly. used to describe Nazi, the, like like a lot of the Nazis, um, was that it's the banality of their evil. That's right, yeah. And you could even say he even resembles uh, Hermann Göring a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty that's, sure. That's, that's a good that, observation. Uh, yeah, that's definitely, I think, what they're going for with a, a large sort of like nonchalant German guy who's evil. Uh, that is pretty much the modus operandi there. Yeah. yeah. And he, could, he could be charming when he needed to be and he could be invisible when he needed to be because he is just a big German guy. And that, Josh, is a good expression because if I recall, that's a chapter title from Casino Royale, isn't it? The Banality of Evil. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> I, I forgot about that. But I, no, I actually read that like in some art, some book about the, the Nazis or something, uh, World War II, and they talk about the banality of evil that the Nazis represent. Hmm. Well, this is a good example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, we, of course, we see that he's a cheat right away because he's cheating, um, cheating yeah. the, uh, the guy at Jin, Jin of, of all things. And, yeah. and Jill Masterson is like his lackey who's, um, you know, filming is, is watching everything through the binoculars for him and reporting. Yeah, I'm not convinced by how easily he gets into Goldfinger's suite, though. Like that. I, yeah, I, I, I like how that maid has the exact has the exact key. Like, uh, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Well, she does say it's Mr. Goldfinger's room, so she knew that he was there. So obviously, she has the keys for that floor. But that's obviously her last day of work at that. <laughs> that's, that's right. She she's not going to be there much longer. But uh, I like I, I like that stuff. Time. That all play, that all plays really well for me. You know, the flirting, the flirting, and and uh, she's quite happy to. She's quite happy to receive Bond there at that particular moment in the book, which I'm going to select a little passage from this part of the film, actually, to read from the book a little later. It, it's played out really nicely as well. But I like this stuff. Um, anything you want to say or add about the Jill well, Masterson I would, stuff? Well, I was going to say, but my little joke about that was, uh, you know, when he's looking through the – I was saying, like, through the looking glass, Queen of Hearts, because, you know, it, it, I was just like – obviously, it's a joke there, but because he was going through – looking through – the binoculars, and he saw uh, he saw uh, Goldfinger's hand. I just thought of that. Was, was the my... Queen of Hearts in his hand? I think it was. I think it was. That would make it all perfect, wouldn't it? Full circle. It, it would. It would. It would. Yep. So, how about Jill's death? That was definitely a surprising moment. Yeah, it's it's a, a striking moment on screen. I really like it. Uh, I think it's funny what you were saying like earlier about how he's. You know, he's just put out and left to lie on the floor while whoever's painting her, presumably odd job or whatever Koreans he's got working for him, are doing the job. Like, I bet it was that sweet, evil Korean girl on the plane. I think she did it. Uh, maybe, yeah. I, I like I like the, the, the discovery of her. I think everything, this is for me personally, and I know it's just an atmosphere thing, but it's really important when you're watching these films to have believable moments, particularly yes. as, the, as the series of films is going to increase in number. We're going to need moments that ground us in reality. And while painting up this girl and her dying, we now know scientifically is not reality. Um, right. 
I think it plays wonderfully on the screen, and I particularly think that because Connery plays the scene of waking up and discovering her really well. I feel like this is him acting, trying to act, thinking about acting. He's not just being suave and cool, but his reactions to picking up the phone and calling Felix and, and is this girl dead and what the hell has happened and shit, my head hurts. And like all of it works. And he doesn't yeah, leave. Yeah. He doesn't leave any one gesture too long or too short. I find that this is a really, really gripping scene. Yeah, Absolutely, it does. and it and it also motivates the story further because exactly. now there's a revenge exactly. element to Bond's motivations. I was gonna say it paints a pretty gruesome picture. Ha! Ah, that was a pun. <laughs> yeah, you're still doing good because I'm still chuckling. Oh, good. That's good. good. Yep. Scott uh, is the measure of of highbrow humor. <laughs> But uh, I, I would I would agree with you there though is that it really that one scene when he wakes up it's like you kind of see Bond sort of like unscripted almost in a way where like you know as much as he's you know he's obviously uh, cool calm collected and cocky which is not a bad thing but that's you know his his uh, that's what he is uh, is that it, it catches him off guard it does and, and I, I can imagine the the call out you know from the director from the floor like he's telling Connery here either. Play it as you imagine it or, you know, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But I think Hamilton is probably just saying, look, I need you to do this. Move here. Think about that. And Connery's pulling this together with his acting. And this is an actor scene. And I like it for that reason. Yeah, correct. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a couple of good actor scenes in this film beyond this one, too. So um, this is kind of the this this is the kind of already we're we're at a very high quality um, picture so far. Um, well, just before we leave this scene, sorry, Josh, uh, there, there's a, a moment where Oddjob's appearance comes inside profile shadow, right? Yes. And I wonder if you if you picked up on it. I'm thinking this is a little tip of the hat to Hitchcock Presents. That's what I'm thinking. Oh. And by hat, you mean the razor? I, yeah, exactly. And I'm... I'm I'm feeling that because Alfred Hitchcock Presents was running at the time. You know, Hitchcock Uh was certainly iconic at the time. He would definitely be known. That uh, that image of a side profile fat man coming and sort of being there would be, or walking into a shadow, would be in the public consciousness. And I'm, I'm wondering if this is a deliberate tip. Oh, and and the fact that the person was a hot blonde. Yeah, that's definitely. uh, That's a good. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Although I, I would say Tilly is more of the Hitchcock well, yes. type. She's more of the colder, icy blonde, I guess you could say. Yeah, she is the icier blonde, but who knows? You know, Jill was, yeah, whatever. I, I just liked it. I thought it was a neat little stylistic thing to, to put in there. Whether, because you, it wasn't Great. so silly that, you know, you didn't have him walking in to some cheapy little music. And I don't yeah. think Barry would whore himself out like that, to be honest. Yeah, no, you're right. Barry's music in that scene was so atmospheric, like yeah, the, the, good. It's like that metal kind of feel that he puts to it, right? Like mm-hmm. it's almost like a gong, almost, but not quite. That's like it's a just, shimmer of gold or something. A yeah. shimmer of gold, yeah, but it's so cold, right? That it, it just connects you back to the lyrics of the theme song, and and uh, you're just getting the, these the, these thematics kind of thrown at us throughout the film. They're really well painted in. Yeah, so I thought so. Uh, okay, well, what, what, what are you going to say, Jeff? Sorry. Oh, no, no. That's, I he just, just said, so I, to speak. I said, to, oh, so to speak. Right. He said, yeah, it's painted. You know, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose if there's a motivating incident, maybe not for Bond's involvement, because he's already in, but if there is a motivating incident for us as viewers, and as you say, Josh, for the revenge to be uh, executed, then this is kind of it, isn't it? This is what moves the plot forward. Yeah, emotionally, we want Bond to avenge her death, right? I mean, that's not cool what Goldfinger did. 
No. It seems like an over-the-top re- reaction to some possible humiliation, you know? Well, it just makes it makes you think, as an audience, like, who would do that? And then even Bond would be like, wow. Who has who, the power? Who, who, am I, who am I dealing with that could actually have that much gold that they could suffocate a person? Uh, in, you know, naked, like just and lie, have them lying in bed, like what the gall of this person, right? Yes, you know, mm-hmm. especially we, when when he's been caught out as well. We then cross the ocean and we get to the golfing stuff, which is wonderful. It's it's really played out yes. nicely here on the like, screen. It's really played out nicely in the book as well. Oh yeah, the, yeah. The, the, I think the book scene and the and the, and the film scene are almost at equal, in my opinion. Like the, the movie did a great job adapting everything to like Hawker. Um, uh-huh. And, uh, and then the whole game itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. Like the, the, the play between the characters. And I suppose at this point we can talk a bit about Gert Frobit because he's playing his role pretty well at this stage, isn't he? I feel bad that he was dubbed over, yeah. but they had yeah, no choice too. really. Uh-huh. And I think that, and the dubbing isn't as noticeable in, mo- no, in most cases. it's not. No, it's and good. He was a, he's a, he's a good, you can tell he's a good actor yeah. because of the body language that That's... he conveys in the role. And Josh and I were talking about this the other day when we were talking about like watching – like for example, just like on Netflix, there's a lot of foreign um, series and stuff like that. And sometimes we can't – well, Josh was saying like he has a hard time telling if a show is done well with uh, foreign actors because you're, you're listening if you're, you're watching the subtitles. But you don't know if they're hemming it up or if they're doing a good job or not because uh, we're just going by their physical acting. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but I would say, and so that made me think of this: is that obviously, unfortunately, they had to overdub him because of his, uh, you know, his lack of English. But watching his body language and how he portrays the character is great. Yeah. So I think that it yeah. must he must be a good actor. I mean, I, that sounds terrible to I, say. No, like. I know exactly what you mean. In his native language, watching him yeah. on German TV, film, or stage, he's a good actor. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think Connery respected him a bit too, didn't he? I think they got on quite well. And I think, I think he so. had yeah. respect there's, there's chemistry there. I mean, you know. Honor Black yeah. in an interview said that she, he was fun to work with as well. Okay, well, good. There you go. You know, the uh, to be mentioned in dispatches is, is a great compliment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so, okay, we, we've then got another one of these... Uh, I mean, as you said in your plot summary, Josh, you've already covered this, but the gold bar is just thrown down there in a really rude gesture as if to say, let's not dick around anymore. We both know what yeah. this is about, right? And I like that. Like, yeah. I think that's really good. But that's also a bluff on Bond's part because he's looking to get something out of this. He doesn't just want to be seen as a crook who's got gold, right? Yes. Um, but the golf, the golf game then is fixed and it's refixed in a neat way. And I love that play. That's a great character scene. And again, just as we discussed in our, in our book series, this scene works really well because it's, it's, it's a simple operation, right? You've got one guy trying to bluff another who's trying to trick another who then double bluffs kind of thing. And it's, it's working. You've got a golf, which is simple. You've got yep. two men and crooked caddy. And that's it. That's all you need, right? And what adds to the gravity of it is that we know we know the history between these two people as well. And that adds to the tension. I mean, yeah, they're playing a golf game, but it's not boring because, you know, the, the stakes behind it, I guess you could say. Well, you could say it was a stroke of genius on uh, the box. <sighs> you could. Yeah, I wouldn't, but you certainly would. I definitely did. I you, just, you just did. And there's also no music in this scene, which helps give it a sort of naturalist right. feel, you know? Yeah, yeah true. It, it really does. That's right. You don't get the music until the end of the scene when Oddjob demonstrates his hat for Bond. That's right. 
And after that, we then get the check written and the, and the pursuit through the Swiss Alps, which that's brings right. us to our, our next big stage, our next big environment. And that's lovely, too. That's, it's really nicely shot. And there's the right amount of silence and camera work going on here to engage the, the, the viewer and I think really keep them interested. Yeah, the whole chase sequence with the GPS is really good. Um, do you want Do you want me to say anything about um, the uh, kind of the uh, the full establishment of Q also just before that sequence? Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. You go right ahead if you'd like. Because to remembering my Bond films from the past, uh, uh -huh. from Russia of Love is when Desmond Llewellyn gets his first walk on scene in the series. Um, he simply there another actor plays Q in the first film, and they call him Major Boothroyd, but. In uh, For Marshall of Love, Q, you know, he gives him the briefcase and all that for his mission. And it's uh, it's a brief scene without much personality, really. Um, but with here, we get the establishment of the long kind of suffering Q has to deal with when it comes to Bond, right? Which is really pushed to the fore in the Roger Moore films, if I recall. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you recall correctly. <laughs> but it's nice for Q to get his time on stage and he's introduced properly with with, with character, not just dialogue, he's introduced with, with little personality quirks and, and you get that whole, I take my job very seriously, which is a trope, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's and also Bond great, doesn't, yeah. Yeah, he's rolling his eyes, you know, having to listen to this for an hour or so. And, yeah. you know, he wants his Bentley. He's not really totally blown away by the Aston Martin. It's kind of funny yeah. how he plays it down. Yet, yeah. Meanwhile, the audiences, the younger audiences are like squealing at like how cool this is, you know? Yeah. It, they play it down pretty well and that seems like you know indicator of this just the slickness that this movie has it's the second time that q has delivered a uh, a what a, a device i guess or a vehicle or a gadget that bond hasn't wanted because he got rid of his beretta in favor of the walter ppk oh, right. in the previous yeah. film and yeah. here here we are getting this yeah so he he, he does kind of roll his eyes as as q offers him these things I also caught that the film, the set that they, they, they have for Q's laboratory, oh, yeah, complete right. with like the windows looking down in the gallery below, is the, almost identical to the one they had in the Living Daylights. Yeah, right. So it's probably the same yeah. set it's just uh, or the same area of the, the studio rebuilt for, for that purpose, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So they probably just used the same blueprints. Well, do you guys want to talk at all about the, the Swiss stuff? Yeah, um, just to, just in terms of like cinematography, it was just gorgeous. Um, and yeah, I love that shot of Tilly aiming at Goldfinger with Bond on the lower level of the cliffs, and then in the, and Goldfinger at the very bottom yeah. near the dam. Right. I had a note on that one. I was saying that uh, when she was up there with the gun on uh, uh, pointing down, you don't know who who she's going to shoot out. Shoot at. I was going to say it's a Bond trap. That's a, that's a little it's <laughs> uh, a little joke there from uh, Sound. Not sound of music. Sound of music, yes. A Von Trap. It was a Von Trap because you know it's in Switzerland. And those and those kids selling apples look mysterious, like the Von Trap um, kids, although right. not being completely blonde. Did they? It was it was a stretch. I also like the idea of Goldfinger stopping on the side to collect apples. I mean, yeah. wh why not? He's hungry. He wants an apple. There's there's this really great human, even though he's yeah. a villain. There's this great humanizing moments. In here that make you feel like you're living in this world and then I mean, set design and and I, th I think just like a direction like that for example and and it probably inserts in the script and whatnot just make it more believable and so, thus increases the the immersion into the to the reality of the, of the film world and this is the second movie in a row where switzerland is uh is a locale and i find switzerland's almost like 
I'm going to use like a Brita filter as an example here. It's like I find Switzerland is really clean. Everyone likes Switzerland. They're neutral. But and it has like sort of that calming like – and you can, you can almost smell like you know the, the alpine air. So it's like I really – I feel like it cleanses the palate from the dirtiness that was seen in the uh, – you know in Miami with uh, the killing of uh, – Yeah, it is a, a big you know. contrast for sure. You're right. But then, but then, of course, in that serene atmosphere, though, you have Indeed. the headquarters of Oric Enterprises yeah. there where a lot of dirty stuff's going on. Mm-hmm. So there's a nice contrast there, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned Switzerland, how everybody likes it. I certainly do, but I've uh, I, I've got a boycott running right now on Swiss chocolate for Christmas because I went to Switzerland in October and right. I rented a car and did a nice little trip through the Alps. And I got home and the uh, Friday the 21st, oh, no, it was Monday yeah, I think it was Monday, Christmas Eve, I received in the post a speeding ticket or a, a violation, a traffic violation from the uh, the Swiss police uh, based in Luzerne, which oh, wow. um, which was given to me for going three kilometers an hour over the speed limit. Wow. So I had to pay a fee of 18 British pounds, about 20 Swiss francs, to, uh, to offset that. And yeah, a little... A little stingy, I thought. You know, I was aware as I was driving out of out of Zurich. I was aware of a light flashing, like you have on these sort of uh, these speed cameras, right? Because there's speed cameras all over the motorways in Europe. And but I didn't know what I was doing. I was looking for the right exit. Am I going too? You yeah. Know? I'm keeping up with the traffic. Can I just say that? Like, I, I'm not gonna speed ahead of the local traffic because I gotta stay with what these guys are doing. Anyway, I don't know so what, what they noticed. So what you're saying uh-huh. is. Bond would have had like a three thousand page tome. <laughs> well, yes, but when he was racing the, the the Mustang there, I think he would have had speed cameras, as we understand them, been around then. But we, so I don't. Yeah. So I guess in terms of the traffic violations and whatnot, we have to do with also Tilly Masterson here. Um, what did you think of her character as a whole? I didn't think much of her, to be honest. I understood her necessity, I guess, but at the same time, she didn't add anything to the story she didn't actually need to be there so i have to retract my statement from 10 seconds ago she wasn't necessary to the plot (laughs) bonds bonds feelings or at least interest in jill masterson could have been enough to keep a connection going i i guess it's it's a film's way of putting another pretty girl in there you know that's fine if that's what they're after um, it seems like another body another another pretty body in goldfinger's wake you know what i mean like yeah yeah, i guess so it's kind of a tragedy, the Masterson sisters, if yeah. you think about it. Like, it is. It's like, why do I, you know, like, but, but unfortunately, you know, we're missing that emotional connection. And mm-hmm. um, that's kind of, I think, one of the movie's flaws, in my opinion. Well, Bond does get her killed, ultimately, because had he not gone and snuck up on her, she would have just shot Goldfinger. Well, or missed him anyway. Or missed him, but she would have, yeah, okay, maybe she would have, <laughs> she would have got herself killed. It's a valid point, though. It's a, yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah, we, we have to presume that the bullet would have hit its target, but who knows? Yeah. Anyway, to answer your question, yeah, she's okay. She's pretty. She's she's okay. They have a, an interesting kind of rapport. She's not really interested in Bond when they first meet, but her car is completely destroyed. And it is. Oh, yeah, big time. Big I don't know how, as you were saying, Josh, how it's just a simple, oh, I've flown off the road with a problem in my tires, <laughs> like a double blowout. I've never seen the half your car has been scratched to shit and, you know, ripped apart by this saw that's cut through my the in my yeah. wheelbase. Anyway. I will give a slight okay. thumbs down. I will give a slight thumbs down to the uh, to the to, you know despite you know the great work they've been doing so far on the film. 
to that scene where she crashes into the ditch. It's it's like it's not even a crash. No, it's, just, it's, it's just like, like slow motion. She's slow motion stopping. Yeah, I know. Ditch. I know. No seat, no like, seat belt that I could see, unless it's a waist buckle and no airbag. She just kind of like crashes lightly and moves forward. That's that's, that's what I said. I said I had it in three words: head, light, out. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Thir- third Absolutely. third film though, yeah, isn't it? Third film in a row. Third film out of four. With a red sports car chase right. with Bond yeah. and a girl, <laughs> and it's a—I think it's a '65 uh, model Mustang. I don't think it was a red car; it was a white car. It was with, white with, with, with the red, with the red convertible red, roof, red upholstery, red upholstery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, yeah, and uh, I think it was the '65 Mustang of the time because it was '64. So I think that was either a '64 and a half or a '65 for the model of the car. That's yeah, a nice, sure. nice car. Anyway, That's very nice. So I love, yeah. I love getting so back. Jill, sorry. So. Yeah, Jill and, and Till are tra- tragically dead by this point, and um, Bond has his car chasing the Aston Martin, and it's pretty it's pretty cool. I can imagine being a kid at the time watching that movie; it probably would be really freaking exciting. Oh yeah, oh dude, I bet it would have been. Yeah, and I like the, I mean, I like that the setup. I guess outside of Goldfinger's, uh, what do you call it, factory there or smelt? I don't know what you would. Referred Smelting to plant. Yeah. yeah. And the interior of that, where he's he's walking the, the Asian doctor around, that, that Chinese guy, he, that's really good. I love I oh, love yeah, the yeah. scene that's there. That's awesome. And the whole setup with like the golden slab and the laser and stuff. That that's right. Just, yeah. yeah, it was just brilliant long shots that they took there to give, you know, full, um, you know, just, it's like, don't you just love Ken Adams' work? Ken Adams' work is just so great. It is. <laughs> it's, it's really wonderful. That's what the camera seems to be telling, that Guy Hamilton is just like in, loving Ken Adams' work in the movie. Yeah, that that smelt stuff is awesome. The uh, the furnaces and the laborers and all that stuff. The steam, it's it's good stuff. And, it doesn't it doesn't pun- linger though. It, it doesn't linger. Sounds that uh, Barry uses in that sequence too. When mm-hmm. Goldfinger's talking about Grand Slam and Bond's looking through the slats and seeing the the car being broken down into gold and stuff is just just. Just, just it's just so Bond, you know that whole sequence. It, it really is. It's cool. And then, of course, we've got the laser, which I don't, I don't know how much you want to say about that. Um, well, in the book, it's a, it's a buzzsaw. Buzz saw. It's even worse in the book, I think. Yeah, it's I, like a buzzsaw or something like that. Well, I think we we watched uh, we were watching some behind the scenes stuff. They said this is the first time a laser has been used on film. I think in this in this way yeah. as, as a weapon but oh. but when they but when they put the studio lights on though the uh the laser disappeared of course yeah. so they basically had to like create like using a settling torch kind of a yeah. thing to image to show you know cutting through the through the gold through which the, they actually the, the already had to cut and then like make it uh make it sort of uh, they had to use another substance to then sort of uh, it was already if you look very closely it's already been scored so then that's how they got it to go straight because it, they already had to cut it with the laser. I was just going to say to that point, the ingenuity and the improv that some of these guys who you never see on screen must have and girls must have done and initiated okay. in order to get certain things to come off properly, you know? And just remember, people say like, oh, well, you can edit it in the end and make it look good. Back then, Back then pe- people cut and spliced yeah. frames together, you know? Yeah, like, so. it's not like you have some, like, Apple, like, some Apple-based e- editing equipment like they have nowadays to edit stuff like this, and it's all CGI anyways. That's right. But yeah. it's just you got to really respect the filmmaking and the work put into it for this film. And you can see it on screen. Not, not just that, Josh, which, I mean, you're correct to say, but we're still dealing with the day of manual focus in cameras. Exactly. Yes. 
Yes. And that's uh, something that, that people just simply, you know, myself included, I'm sure, you know, just just don't value and don't appreciate enough when you're watching an old it, film, which is why Hitchcock's movies to me remain so stand oh, out yeah. for what they Absolutely. were doing, you know? Yeah, I, yeah I, exactly. I, I agree with that. And Orson Welles, too. That's the thing. It's yeah. like when people watch old films, they're like, oh, yeah, I got the Blu-ray of it. It's like, okay, that's great. But, like, watch it. That's why, again, I would say, I said this earlier, is whenever I watch a period movie, I try and watch it as someone watching that movie from that era, yeah. year, whatever. Yeah. Uh-huh. Did anybody agree with my assessment about how, like, non-cliche that sequence is, even though it's, pre- it's usually brought up as the most cliche sequence in a Bond film ever? Yes, I do I agree with you. With yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's not cliche because it was never done. That's right. And not only that, how it's, Bond isn't actually, like, he could have died in that room and Goldfinger could have just walked away and just been 10 yeah. feet away and he would have Bond would have died mm-hmm. and nothing could be done. Mm-hmm. Bond is that you just uses, this is the beginning in the storyline of Bond using desperate measures to survive yep, because Goldfinger's yep. got the drop on him. He really does. Up until the end of the movie almost, right? Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. This is the, this is the birth of the villain uh, keeping Bond alive humorous trope. But the, the truth yeah. is Bond convinces him that he might know enough about this to be a threat to its success. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that with, with um, Goldfinger as he is, I really thought the his one-liner of saying, like, no, I expect you to die. That's one of the best burns, pun intended, for what was about to happen yeah. uh, for Bond. It's like, again, it kind of caught him off guard because you could really see Bond is – He's like he's screwed and he knows yeah. it and you yeah. can see it, which really makes the audience it, it makes that scene like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? He's also supposed to be unmanned as well. So exactly. there's an additional part of that. And that but, must be great tension for the audience is the male ones in particular. But this is where Josh and I were talking about the banality of evil is just watching Goldfinger just like walk away like he's leaving a kid to play with like his building blocks in the basement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know. And he's like, no, I expect you to die. I'm, now I'm going to go eat a Toblerone. That's what basically <laughs> that's what I felt. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so or pay off my speeding tickets. That's what he was gonna go and do, and Bond's gonna die. So that's you know. Yeah. Then we also, and also too, um, credit to Barry again. Like even though this this score has been really brassy and ballsy throughout so far, that you get one of his signature, just really good um, instrumental pieces that he does at the tension of that scene. That you see him use the same style throughout the Bond films in the future. Yep. I personally love I love that I love the uh, the cue that Barry does for 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 the uh, laser sequence. <clears throat> also in this, yeah. Also in this scene, we get the introduction of the, another Goldfinger underling. We got Mister Ling established, and the Koreans an odd job. And now we meet uh, Mister Kish, right? Um, who's kind of has a weird presence throughout the film. Like, is there? I, I was always curious watching the movie. What is his story? What you know is what I mean. His story. Who is he? Like, I, you can't you can't figure out who he is by his name. If you you know if you kind of think of like lineage or or, or background, yeah. um, you can't. I just can't figure him out. Him and Pussy Galore kind of suffer from a, a lack of de- development. Development, yeah. I, I think, in this in the last half yeah. of the film. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess an expanded universe would maybe do something with him. It would. I'm sure they but, would. I'm sure. I'm sure there'd be a novel series about each but one. But what is also kind of neat though is that. The sort of that that air of like mystery, you just don't know. Like it's sometimes there, it's kind of like um, the uh, Joss is calling him Captain Peroxide in Honor Honor Majesty's Secret Service. You don't know too much about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's yeah. another but, example of like you knew more about these guys than you did about um, that gentleman. But uh, well, that's funny because I don't find this character 
all that interesting, to be honest. I found the guy on a Majesty's Secret Service really interesting. I think yeah, because he was better he written was. in the story. He, was. he, well, I'm not, I'm not, he was better written. I'm not yeah. comparing like the quality of the character. I'm just saying that it's sort of like we don't. The, there's these characters that have a have you know there's a reason for them there, but we just don't know. I wasn't also I wasn't also sure if he was American or yeah. if or if he was like European. Yeah, I wasn't I quite sure on his nationality. He kind of had like an olive, you know. Uh, he kind of had like that olive kind of Mediterranean skin look to him, I guess. Like, but I, you can't tell because his name kind of almost sounded German. I don't know. Yeah. Well, before we leave this scene, guys, I, I want to share something that uh, Sarah. We I was watching this with my wife, and she brought this up. <laughs> <laughs> I got a, a quote here, like during this whole car chase and, you know, with all the Asians, it just seemed to be everywhere, right? She, yeah. she said it was like a Nintendo game before Nintendo was invented with like all these Asians just keep coming out in clusters. <laughs> You've got well, to defeat. Well, I made you know? a similar thing where I said it was like a, a Chinese fire drill. It was like yeah, getting yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. I said it was like... Uh, when there's smoke, there's a Chinese fire drill. That's what I said. Uh, totally. It, it seems this begins a trend, I think, in the 60s in the Bond films where the villain isn't really so much Soviet Russia as it's, it's like Trump, yeah. Red China and Spectre. Those are like the, you know, those, co- communism, but not from the Russian side is not mm-hmm. overly villainized, is, is more villainized than the, than the Russians are in the earlier Bond films. Yeah, totally. Yeah, You're there's right a bit that. of a, I don't know institutional racism there. Perhaps yeah, I guess. It's, it's hard to say. I think it's I think well, like you're saying, I think it's just kind of like communism is always kind of like the villain, I guess, and so they're just trying to take other sort of um, I don't want to say nationalities, but no, I think you're right. I think that is what it is. What it is because there's communist Chinese. There was the there was the the communist Chinese that were fighting with Korea, yeah. um, you know, and so this is all around the same time, right? Because '64 Vietnam is having an issue and uh-huh. and. You know, so all that you know, it, it ties in with other people. They're not just trying to use communist Russia. Yeah, well, the irony is, um, well, no, so much as an irony, but uh, it's funny how like all of these communists that you see in the film, like Ling and, and his and his henchmen and whatnot, you know, they're aligning themselves with probably the worst worst example of capitalism you could ever see. If we had some more like more motivation from Ling as a character or more development of Ling yeah. as a character, yeah. you, you could see they're probably just trying to, you know, they're just playing along with Goldfinger, right? They're probably going to discard him when they don't need him anymore. So this is all to the greater <laughs> cause, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Well, let's move on then to the greater cause and let's talk about the Kentucky stuff where we move into the denouement. We get to Kentucky where we learn about uh, Operation Grand Slam. And if, if I can just talk for a brief second, I don't want to say a lot about it. I just want to talk about the Kentucky, the ranch itself. Um, I love the environment of that interior space when the, the, the mafioso guys are all there, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That Uh, room was incredible. And I'm ignoring the fact that so much of its construction was completely moot because he's going to kill these guys anyway. So like that that uh, just shows how over the top and awesome. It does. Yeah. It totally makes sense that a guy who won't like, kill a woman just by soaking her in gold mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and he, of course he would have the opulence to have this like basically this overgrown like playhouse like <laughs> I, I said my joke here was I was saying that obviously um, in, in current like in, in modern times today Goldfinger would be a Warhammer enthusiast judging by like yeah. his tables and everything there totally <laughs> you know? yeah he would be indeed, and I like <laughs> I like that because it it makes him interesting and it fits nicely in with what Bond said in quite reductive terms to Pussy Galore. He's quite mad, you know. You do know that, right? Like he's this guy's really screwed up in the head, and then you get all these great prolonged 
uh, examples of just how he is really messed yeah. up. Like he'll go oh, to the, yeah. these like degrees. He's, he's very uh, thorough, you know. Um, and but he's just his plans are so ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> more and more, I'm, I'm reminded, and this will probably go in the score with the acting and the story and atmosphere. I don't. I think Goldfinger is one of the great Bond villains, and and there and you can see why. Yeah, I think he is one of the great Bond villains, and of course. Tagged along with him is Pussy Galore. She is aligned with him as the pilot and the, well, really the, without her, this doesn't work, right? right he needs, he needs her is, whole fleet of uh, pilots to carry this out. And to do that, he has to seduce her to his cause. Mm-hmm. Well, he and seduces her to the money. Exactly. Yeah. That's how you, well, you assume, I, I guess that, but they kind of, yeah. Do you what get the, the feeling, do you guys get the feeling when you watch this that she's actually committed to the cause? I don't. No, definitely not. I think no. I don't think she, she's necessarily committed to the, like the cause, but I know that she's just kind of using it as a way to, to you know, for revenge. I think. Here's my question, though. I don't think she knew about the nerve gas. No, I think, because I think Bond was able to seduce her in the sense. Well, we'll get into that, but yeah, to, 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 so that she would actually listen to what he had to say. Yeah, because he's trying to like play at her morality throughout. You know, like you know, he kills little girls like you, or you know, he's quite mad. You know. And because he because he, uh, he mistakes her for being someone out of her element or, or yeah. something where she feels that she's not and she needs to keep that end up on her end. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that um, I think that once he's able to, I guess, seduce her in the way that he does, he's able to tell her about the nerve gas that she may not have known about. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he did. I don't think she did know. I, don't, I can't see her like. Like in terms of, of writing her as a character, as a redeemable character, um, which you got to look at it because she is technically the love interest in this film. Yeah. You can't say that she was aware of all that stuff going on because that would that would make her irredeemable in front yeah. of the audience. Yeah, that's yes, true. that's correct. Uh, it's like Skywalker killing younglings, you know, like it's 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 well not the same thing, but it's just kind of my comparison. We are flying ahead a little, um, and it's my fault because I brought us there. But I just want to say as well, I really like everything in the airplane. I love the set design, the interior of the airplane, that, you know, all the stuff, the little toying he has where he's got the shaving cream up in the spy holes. All that stuff's really cool where he gets his drink and all that. Like, I like all of that stuff. I had had a couple of notes on that. I thought it was funny. I was saying, like, you know, the innuendo takes flight at this point. And Uh, uh, I was saying it's just plain obvious innuendos in the hangar, that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Playing in the hangar. I also called out the uh, (laughs) Newfoundland name drop. Oh, yes. You did that? Yes. Yeah, you did well. Or Newfoundland. Well, over here, here it's Newfoundland. uh, Yeah. uh, I was going to say, though, I feel like this plane is basically where Austin Powers got all of his, like, swinging... Bed stuff in his plane. <laughs> I feel that's where it came from. Probably, probably. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, okay, back back to Operation Grand Slam and Fort Knox and all this stuff. That's the uh, the P- Pussy Galore's flying circus does the job ultimately, though the canisters have been switched because Bond does her his judo chop slash force throw you into the hay slash I'm going to pressure myself upon you but it's not rape but really it's kind of sexual assault very much but it's okay because she's okay with that we know she's okay with that because Goldfinger has already used her quite weakly as a decoy a sexual decoy to keep Bond who he should have killed a long time ago by this point stringing Bond along is dumb I buy why he strung him along at the beginning but now I don't get it anymore because he's not even interrogating him to find out what he knows so by this point any charity that I was willing to give Goldfinger regarding his uh, keeping Bond alive like he did in the smelt, I don't have a lot for him anymore because here's where he should have just shot him, but he doesn't. Yeah. 
But I guess that if you Scott want, if you would agree with you. Well, he would. But if you want to play apologist, you could defend him and say, well, this is part of his madness. He likes to toy with people, you know, the same way he yes. built up that whole that whole environment uh, of the flipped Rome just for the sake of showcasing what his master plan was. So, OK, fine, I'll go along with it. But I find this pretty weak. And he manages to get pussy galore in a very distasteful uh, scene onto his side as well. Now, if you look at it in real life circumstances, he was now because secret agents do things that are morally reprehensible for their country. If you've ever seen the show, the seen the show, the Americans, I mean, they do some terrible, terrible things in, in their cause. You know what they believe is, is is a good thing. Even the CIA is portrayed that way, and it it just goes to show, you know, that the fact that like thousands of people could be nerve gassed, and then Bond has to seduce or even force this woman to see the way that the way the things are to save those people. That's when you're dealing with moral ambiguity there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't disagree. And I, I can go not, along with some pleasant. of it. It's, it's no. not pleasant. It's not good at all, at all. No. Um, yeah, no. But there is sort of a, a, a real kind of spy element, I guess you could say, to that. There is. And there's also an acknowledgement of gender roles at the time, whether we like yes. it or not. And my grandmother, our grandmother, Josh, will, uh, will, will kind of confirm some of this for us when she talks about <laughs> she has no problem with how women are treated in this film. Like, you know, it, it just just goes along with that. And OK, so we don't have to like it coming at it from today, but we, we do got to we got to call it out at least. It's not and then comfortable stuff. I mean, the Fleming source material and you have her actually being a lesbian in the novel uh -huh. and then uh -huh. Bond converting her is the sole reason why Grand Slam doesn't take effect. That's right. Because that it was supposed be, to. Yeah, because he manages to make an evil lesbian a, a good straight girl. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. it's, that's so terrible in t t today's Well, to get, together, heterosexuality can, can cure evil. Oh, boy. <laughs> is that okay, not, is that not, that's, that's the theme of the story, isn't it? Yeah, I think I, I, this is probably Mike Pence's favorite movie. Probably. <laughs> I'm sure he has a lot to say on that, like everything else. Him just yes, sitting there, yes. hair staring straight ahead. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, let's let's move on, guys. And uh, do you want to talk about Grand Slam? Do you want to talk about anything? The music in this in the sequence is great, beginning and oh, end, all, all through oh, it. There's a lot of lot of uh, a lot of extras that get squashed in doors and fall over guardrails yeah. and things. Like, Apparently, that's the same set of soldiers in each shot. They had a bunch of soldiers to use as extras, and <laughs> yeah. they just basically just use those same soldiers in each different shot. There's also alternate angles that were taken for different of the of the scenes as well of them falling down like dominoes. <laughs> yeah, I like the U.S. soldiers who get shot by that double crossing Goldfinger. Uh, they die ridiculous like, deaths. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I noticed that all their weapons are well, not all their weapons, but most of the weapons are World War II era. They have some of the new M14s, but some of them have like Tommy guns with drum clips and Grands uh -huh. and, and all that kind of stuff. Another highlight point for me uh, was Connery's leap at odd job. Once he's released from his handcuffs, he grabs yeah. him by the neck like Captain Kirk in Star Trek would. You know? Yeah, that was oh, awesome. Yeah. He's like fighting the Gorn or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking of too. And I, I like that. It's the, you know what though. This is the point on physical presence that I, I'm curious if if you guys feel this way. I mean, Connery was a very physical man, obviously, right, yeah. Mister Universe and all the rest of it. I think but it was Mister Universe, not Mister Yeah. Was he? Uh, do you see him as a great physical actor? 
because yeah. I, I, I'm asking if you do because I found particularly at the beginning of the film and again here at the end I like him more with Oddjob because he's a bigger character right so, yeah. uh, the actor's a bigger guy but I do find that a lot of his opposition is undermatched it kind of makes it kind of makes him a bit more lumbering than skillful with his body that's, yeah, that's d- a fair d- assessment definitely in comparison to like his fight with uh, Grant yeah I, I don't know I'm just it's just something I, I noted that some of his physical action feels a little bit just feels a little bit out of tempo or something I, I don't know what it is maybe he's not really committed to it maybe rate sped up or something in some of those cuts perhaps yeah. but I don't know I always found Connery very physical and I always liked his fights I never found like compared to Roger Moore like Roger Moore is basically getting punched in the gut and going Oomph! like every two seconds oh, <laughs> like I, I never thought him as a great fighter I mean he has a couple of good fight scenes but hmm. not in comparison to say Craig or Connery that's why I think uh, they're the good they're, that's why I like them as Bond so much is because of their physicality that's that's cool I, I disagree with you on that and this this is only the first one I'm, I'm recalling I also recall a fight from you only live twice that I really did like but it it, it felt more real because of the use of furniture against a guy similarly in si- oh, similar yeah. in size I like that yeah. but I, I don't know like I that scene yeah absolutely I enjoy this end scene here I just don't really feel as though all through they're matching him up with good opposition mm. I don't know, but I mean, life's not necessarily going to match up with good opposition. So yeah, you, you know, I, you don't I guess have you could to. say they kind of nerf the uh, villains. F- <laughs> that's a good. That's a great yeah. description, Josh. They nerf. Yeah, they nerf the villains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to remember that one. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see how uh, how Connery's physicality works out. Well, definitely great presence, diamonds are but... forever. So one thing that I thought this movie, I had, there was a bit of, uh, you know, suspension of disbelief is that being Fort Knox in Kentucky, there was no bluegrass anywhere on the lawn. And I was <laughs> yeah. 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 Where's the bluegrass? Where the hell is I the I was blue- super grass. annoyed. Mm. Sorry about that. <laughs> I also want to point out in terms of like uh, the acting and uh, in particular, and Gert Frobe, him being an actor who's doing his best with his body language in this film when he's being dubbed over and whatnot. The scene between first Goldfinger and Pussy Galore and then afterwards, uh, then her leaving and then Bond joining him, having the mint juleps. That's a fantastic dialogue oh, yeah. sequence. That's it is. Great. That's a really – yeah, the, the veranda stuff is really good. It's really good. And it's it really, really to me sells Goldfinger as a villain because you see he put his hand on Pussy Galore mm. and she's repulsed by him but in a very subtle way and he knows it. So he's like, OK, well, I'm going to make you a whore now. And he mm. basically – Shows her who's the boss, right? And he's content with that. He even has a ha kind of laugh as she walks away to go get in something more c- comfortable, right? It's kind of like uh-huh. So to me, it just emphasized how much of a great villain that he is. Yeah. And compare that scene. Compare that scene to what didn't work in GoldenEye where you had Sean Bean licking the face of uh, uh, of what's her what, – the actress's name, uh, Isabella Skorupko or whatever her name was, right? Yeah, like, and he has to be the big sex pest, and Goldfinger just tries a little something; it doesn't work, and that's fine. And I suppose you know Goldfinger licking her face in the nineteen sixty four—that's not going to work, is it? But no, this guy recognizes it. He's got more class, and he drops it right. And he then, as you say, manipulates her and, and whores her out, which is even worse, really. Yes, absolutely. Than her giving in to him. All right. Well, look, guys. Um, I mean, uh, the, the climax of the film is great. It's it's all. It, it, it's good. I like the Fort Knox stuff. I don't love it. I like it, and it yeah. works fine. The, the film is holding me here, and I like some of the stuff within it, interestingly enough. 
the bomb is not one of the things that I like, but uh, <laughs> and and that that's us really. That's us film done when the the uh, get smart bomb. Yes, the the very end of it with as you say, Josh uh, Goldfinger getting sucked out the window and proving all of those uh, okay. on air or the airline pamphlets correct. <laughs> that that stuff is that's okay. I, I I don't care. I don't quite understand how the radar works. With the guys watching the plane go down, I don't get that really. Wouldn't the parachutes not show up on the on the radar if they jumped out? Yeah, like how does that work? But whatever. I Unless know. anyway, it doesn't matter. They end up making out and having sex, and everything's great at the end, right? So what, that's fine. One thing I yeah. one thing I wanted to mention with the whole like love scene in the hay is I was uh, I wanted to say that that seemed like a very unstable relationship. <laughs> a roll in the hay. Get it? Sorry. What are the Bond and stables, eh? Like he, yeah, uh, he I was gonna say, he, he gives yeah. he gives time to Pussy Galore oh, in the stable this. in the Kentucky, and then on Her Majesty's Secret Service, he's in a stable when he proposes. Mm-hmm. He must like stables. Was he born in a barn? <laughs> yeah. Is he Jesus? Is he G- Bond? Is Jesus a new well, theory? We know that he Discuss. has a complex. But which one? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So the Church yeah. of Bond. Yeah, so Church of Bond. That's pretty much it. We've gone through, I guess, the main points of the film. Let's score this son of a gun. I just have one thing I wanted to add. Yeah. So here, sorry, when you you know when you had the CIA agents, they're there in their trench coats, but really, like CIA agents in trench coats like that, I mean, I mean, camouflage, right? And I thought CIA guys are not supposed to work on, you know, um, domestic soil there in the United States. I just thought that was kind of funny. Are they doing that as a personal favor to Bond, though? That's what I mean. I'm like, really? You're, you're, you know. Yeah. That's funny. I don't know. Hollywood and, and the Broccoli's in extension probably don't give a crap. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. just, I Wouldn't be the first. I don't know what the, the dictum is on that. Hmm. I mean, as far as I know, if it's, um, you know, domestically, it would have to be the FBI, but it could have been like military, military intelligence. But, I mean, if it's Felix Leiter, it's got to be CIA, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting, and I kind of feel like they're stringing lighter along in this in this particular uh, adaptation just to have him in there, you know. Yeah, he, ma- like, he made we're, sense we're, at the beginning. The, the other the other thing I thought of uh, is that with how um, lighter really helped and let let um, let MI six know what was going on is that, that I think that scene was supposed to show sort of the uh, the camaraderie between agencies and U.S. And, and British allies at the time because it's still the Cold War and stuff like that and working together for the greater good. I think that may have been – maybe I'm looking too much into it. No, but I don't think you are. You're probably but, looking at it properly. But anyways, that, I just wanted to mention that too. All right. Well, I'll go first with my scoring yep. unless okay. there's an objection. And I'm not, I'm not going to really – speak much more about them than just numbers. I feel like I've spoken enough about them. I think that we're just ready to hit a, hit some digits, as they say. As the kids say, you know, flip the digits. Do they say that? Flip the, flip the, the digits, kids say that sure. shit? I don't know. It sounds Give like something numbers. kids would say. I don't know. You're, you're the father. Show I, me I, the I money know. pennies. Show me the money pennies. Show me the money pennies. Right. For story... Uh, I didn't love it, but I certainly liked it. I went 7.5 for story here. Um, I, I did think there were some weaknesses to it, mm-hmm. particularly how Bond being strung along at the end without interrogation, that, that was a problem for me because I'm okay buying it if that is your MO, 
but you yeah. then got to actually challenge your prisoner and discover why he was kept alive in the first place. If you really have fear about what he knows, are you just toying him along? Show yeah. me that a little. Be a little more transparent than that. Yeah. Um, just just don't give him plot armor, basically. Yeah. Maybe it's, and again, the second point, similarly, maybe because I'm coming at it from a, a modern look, I do have some problems with how the females are represented in the story generally speaking it's not a big problem for me i'm taking the film as it as it is i'm enjoying it i'm still you know i'm still a red-blooded male at the end of the day uh, a heterosexual male uh but i don't need the women to be you know abused and kind of degraded to get my jollies uh i went 7.5 i went seven for the acting i thought connery was at his best in some scenes here particularly where he was trying to act out small gestures and things like I really like that because I don't feel like particularly in the next couple of Connery films unless I remember incorrectly he doesn't do a lot of of good um, emotional acting he doesn't emote a hell of a lot and so I liked him here because I felt like he was trying to emote and I felt like he enjoyed himself and that kind of came off I liked Gert Frobe quite a bit Um, I didn't like the Felix Leiter stuff I didn't like much of the stuff acted on U.S. soil, I found that there were some ridiculously over-the-top, bordering on... Uh, what disrupt- is this, America dis- around? Yeah, dis- <laughs> exactly. Disruptive, <laughs> gangster, wise guy stuff. Oh, like yeah. What are you that- up to, Goldfinger? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's hey, what's going on here, huh, you wise guy? It's, like, it's hard, <laughs> to believe- hard, to- hard to believe that one of these guys would have pulled a gun. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I-, I got problems with some of that stuff, but... But well, I yeah, went seven. I went seven. They look like confused for organized crime. Yeah, like, I where, are, like where <laughs> yeah. are their soldiers yeah. too? Like like they, they, like those guys would be like capital regimes. Like where are their soldiers? <laughs> That's you know? right. They wouldn't yeah. all just be there. Uh, the book does a better job with this. Um, the atmosphere I went eight for. I really liked it uh, for mm. the interior spaces, the exterior stuff. There were some cheesy insert shots, but I take that as as por- part and parcel of, of the time. Yeah. I didn't didn't think the atmosphere was as great as in the previous film. Either the shooting. Either the editing, either the sound. You know, the sound still worked for me better in the previous film, even though this one was the one that received the Oscar. Uh, but yeah, I went uh, eight, or sorry, seven, five, seven, and eight, which brings me to a 22.5 for Goldfinger, half point below Honor Majesty's Secret Service and my numerical scoring. What about you guys? Well, sorry, Josh. Um, thanks, Jeff. Uh, for story, I give this seven and a half out of 10. The same reasons you did. I think it was a very solid story, but it does have some defects that uh, cause believability to strain near the end, especially with Goldfinger stringing Bond along when he no longer needs to interrogate him. I also didn't think they built uh, Pussy Galore's character enough in order to um, make you know the play that he does resound significantly in the story. And I think that was really key to making that scene work because you had a jump cut between rolling in the hay and then Operation Grand Slam. Yes, and you're right. Yeah. I feel that there's need to be something more oomph-y, I guess you could say, um, to indicate, you know, that change in allegiance, you know, more subtly, yep. I, I, I guess you could say. I think that's um, a good observation, Josh. And I would, ju- I would just second it because – if you know, give give Honor Blackman a moment to act. You know she can act, so give her right. some. Yeah. Give, give these two. Give them. Give them a three minute conversation scene. Yeah. You know, it's not like she was in a chocolate commercial like uh, exactly. you know, Bond. <laughs> exactly. She was in a show for a yeah. while. And there's yeah. only it's only 111 minutes anyway. This film or something like that. So you could you could put two or three minutes in where where we get that filler that we need to yeah. believe in the change. Right. 
Yeah. In, in terms of pace, though, the movie just like you know it steamrolls ahead, and it really uh, there's does. not really any besides the golf sequence is the only real slow moment, yeah, I guess you could exactly. say, in in terms of how a modern audience would view it, in my opinion. Um, but even that slow sequence is still you know gold. Um, par- pardon the the use the word usage oh my there. Goodness. Um, okay, so what about acting, pal? Acting, I actually gave it a high. I went to eight out of ten for acting. Um, okay. I think Connery's at the top of his gang. Yeah. I think he's both like. Great for audiences, and he's also great as an acting and this actor in the story as well, like emoting the way that you said that he does. Mm-hmm. And he's just a blast. It's like watching Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones or Han Solo for the yeah. first time, yeah, you know? Yeah. Like, it's just iconic performance. I think Gert Frobe did a great job um, as a villain in the movie. He made me remember Goldfinger as one of my favorite Bond films once again. And it's and it, it has to do as uh, Bond villains as, as well and it has to do with like the body language that he has oh, that's exactly it. and and how and how he carries it like and I did he did a good job and in her scenes Pussy Galore did have some resonant like you could tell that she's not a bad actress oh, yeah. right yeah, I know. and and she was good and there was a bit of a swagger to her but I wanted to see the chinks in her armor show a little bit more and that show that development and they kind of fell on that but that's not her fault so I won't dismiss her for the acting exactly. um uh Felix Slater was all right um Again, I think the acting part is elevated by Connery in this film, but I also give good, 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 good scenes to uh, Bernard Lee in his in, in his short time in the movie, as well as um, Desmond Llewellyn. It all felt very, very natural in how everything was carried out throughout the film. So, I give kudos to that. Um, in terms of the atmosphere, I gave 9 out of 10. I think like OHMSS, but not as quite. Uh, Goldfinger is all about the atmosphere. Everything yeah, about this is. film, it the is. score, the score, the how it was filmed, like just – there's some incredible, like some of the some of the shots and how it was put together remind me of a little bit of a Hitchcock film. Actually, I don't know if you agree with me, but th- this Guy Hamilton sense of style it, it reminds me a lot of um, of a Hitchcock in the terms of how he staged things. Maybe it's just because they're both Technicolor films. Sorry, directors working with Technicolor, and so that kind of palette kind of emerges, anyways. But there's some great photography in this film and editing and um, editing music. Um, and just in general, the, the production design to give the feel of of, the, of an iconic Bond film, and Goldfinger had it in spades. All right, so that's you at twenty four point five VFG. Uh, Jeff, what about you? Well, um, so with the acting, I, the one that carried it the most would, would have been Connery. Uh, I do like um, uh, is it is Frober? Uh, Froba. Uh, Froba. I think he was great simply because. He was dubbed, so we had to go with his physical acting as much as what was written for him. Um, so that was impressive. Um, but the acting wasn't fantastic, but I give it seven and a half. And okay. mostly I'm going on on Bond and how you like you were mentioning in that scene when he really uh, struggles and is uh, almost afraid, you know when he sees when he sees the you know the body covered in gold paint. Um, so it's his react it's his action reactions. As the, in the role of Bond in this film that I think are are very strong, so he carries the acting score on that. Uh, also, yeah, Desmond Llewellyn. Uh, it's nice to see him sort of uh, carry over the frustration with Bond as he keeps going. As you see, like the love hate relationship is that he does a really good job of his small but important role as as Q. Um, atmosphere. I'm going to go with atmosphere now. I'm going to say nine point five because I think. Goldfinger, it is the atmosphere. It's like why this is an iconic film is because it's it's the sets, it's everything. It, it it this is like pretty much what people use as a as a 
like we were saying before, it's kind of like a stepping stone for these kind of films. The this atmosphere brings it, um, and you look at all the movies that either make fun of it or or uh, make homages to Bond. It's eighty to ninety percent Goldfinger. So I think the atmosphere here is nine point five. Uh, for me, it's nine point five. <clears throat> you guys both argue the atmosphere well. You're you're making me wonder if my eight is a little skimpy. But uh, keep going, keep going. But but again the. You know, the action scene in Fort Knox is kind of like chintzy. It kind of reminded me sometimes of like a Godzilla film sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but um, the story the story I'm going to give uh, seven and a half. Because the story, similar to Josh's, I was kind of wavering between seven and seven and a half. The story isn't the best. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, and I would agree with both of how you were describing describing it i i'm on i'm on par with that but it, the story i find lacking uh compared to everything else and unfortunately like i'm going to go back to the acting it's like yeah they should have given like you guys were saying they should have given honor blackman a lot more or at least a little bit more screen time because she i think she she should have had it she there's a little more her, i wanted to hear more of her story um they almost make her to a MacGuffin. sorry jeff i just yeah, wanted no, no, to, no. to, to put in the hitchcock reference there um, anyways, long story short, I give the acting 7.5 money pennies, the atmosphere 9.5, and the story 7.5. And that brings you to 24.5 money pennies. So you and Josh tied at 24.5, and I'm just a couple below at 22.5, but a film that we all enjoyed, and uh, a, definitely a film that we would recommend. Well done, guys. That's us uh, having scored Goldfinger. Shall we stop now to see what Granio thought of it, Josh? Yeah. Let's see if uh, they deserve it or not. All right. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this next feature of Bond by Numbers is one that's been in all the previous episodes. So you'll have heard this before, unless, of course, you have a problem with grandsons talking to grandmothers about movies. If you have, then you probably have skipped over the last one. We got about eight, <laughs> eight, 18 minutes edited conversation here with uh, our grandmother at the age of 93. She's a big Bond fan. The reason we got into this series to begin with and uh, sat down with her last night and talked about Goldfinger. Let's let's see what she thought. Well, now, Granio, we, you've watched Goldfinger, and yep. uh, it's the first Sean Connery film that we've explored in the series, and you'll be quite excited by that, I'm sure. Was that the first one? It's the first Connery film that we've reached, yeah. Is it? Yeah, I must say he looked good. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not surprised to hear you say that, um, <clears throat> but... Let me ask when you. I, when I think about what he looked like then, when I first you know, was introduced to him, and what he looks like now, it's two completely different people, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he's a very old, yeah, he's an older man. Yeah, because now he looks like a, you know, an old man. Mm. Well, of course he is, and I because I'm, I'm an old woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me start by asking you uh, about Connery because you've held no secret about Connery being your favorite Bond, and you say that he's the one who, you know, you fell in love with first. He's the one who. Yeah, well, I actually when I first saw him after reading the, I only read the the, the books first. And uh, he was my imagination of what Sean got, what 007 would look like. Okay. And after that, I mean, I was, I don't think anybody picked up on it like he did. Would you, would you still feel that way if Connery 
Like if he wasn't such a handsome guy and if he looked like the back end of a... Oh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say that. No, I wouldn't say that. No? After I saw the first movie, I had Dolo 7 looking like Sean Connery. Now, many people, probably the majority of people, in fact, feel that Connery is the quintessential Bond. But how much of that has to do with the fact that he was the first and how much of it has... I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I think maybe because he, he just certainly took the description in the books. Yeah, yeah. You know? And for, for instance, what's his name, the, the one that's uh, 007 now? Da Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. When I first saw him, I thought, no, he doesn't portray Bond to me at all. But now that he's made a couple of films, I've, I've enjoyed his um, portrayal, you know? I know his fight scenes are, are terrific, and, and he's so agile. Well, Sean never did anything but pull his cufflinks. <laughs> well, well, let, let's talk about this then, because Goldfinger, okay. because Goldfinger is a film where Sean Connery doesn't really do very much. He's a prisoner for much of the film. But the, most of the film is, yeah, he's a prisoner. That's right. So, um, how do, but he has a couple of fights there, and, and he doesn't do anything afterwards. His hair doesn't even <laughs> fall out other place. Yeah, and so I mean, are you are you okay with that? He's just a good-looking guy who doesn't really do much. Yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I'm certainly okay with the way he looks, but well, not really. You know, when you think about, but but uh, it's not necessarily poor acting so much as the people who put the, the film together should have. Uh, could have made it more uh, authentic. Well, they could have given him more to do. Yeah, the, yeah. the script. I mean, the script give was... him a, a lousy hairdo or something. Well, they could have made it look like he was. <laughs> and take, yeah, yeah. take, take his, his jacket off and, and uh, fight in his sleeves. But he does look particularly good in this film. I think this is probably Connery's best-looking film. I mean, he was—he's not—he's not, yeah, he's not a bad so looking man at any time. But in these films, he was really, really quite sharply dressed, and he looked very confident, very suave in this film, didn't he? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, what did you think of Goldfinger as a villain? Did you like him? Oh, the story was fine. I didn't like the guy himself. No, you didn't like the the actor. The actor. Yeah, but I, I don't think you were supposed to like him, were you? I well, I'm not sure. I think he played the role fairly well for a a, a German actor whose lines were dubbed. I thought he did a fairly good job. Yeah, I like Pussy Galore. Yeah, I'll I don't think I've ever ever seen her in a film before. Well, yeah, she was 38 at the time of filming, I believe. Really? Maybe, did she make any afterwards? Maybe 36. She, I'm sure she did. She went on to do something afterwards. I don't know. Yeah, but not, not 007 ones. No, she didn't go on to do any more Bond films. No, there's no. Uh, only only one uh, only one appearance of her. So, what what did you take away from this film? What did you like about it? Yeah. Well, this. And, but they do. They take 
take umbrage with a lot of these uh, when they're making the film, don't they? Yeah, there's a lot of creative license that's, that's yeah. certainly exercised. But this, they, they do it their way. I did feel, though, having recently read the book, that they did do a decent job adapting this one. They made some slight changes here and there to uh, Operation Grand Slam, as Goldfinger called it, Pussy Galore's Flying Circus. They, they downplayed the lesbianism, which was very strong in the book. She was a lesbian in the book. Oh, I didn't get that, see? Yeah, well, we didn't get it in the film. But I can see now where, you know, where that would be the case. You know, so they made slight changes like that for the sake of a lot of... But she, she was the one who had a flying school I mean, wouldn't that be enough reason for having a bunch of good little women? Yeah, of course. I guess so. But I guess, I suppose it's the, the focus on the the, the female, yeah, well, female exactly. empowerment. When the, when that movie first came out, you, you didn't look at movies like that and think, you know, they were gay. No, I guess not. No, I mean, that, was, that was not a, a word that we dwelled on. Yeah, well, it's... It's a feature of the story in the book, not in the film. In the book, I see. That's it. I think I would, uh, after seeing the films, I would enjoy the book more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, the book is very good. I, I enjoyed the story yeah. of Goldfinger. Uh, and I loved the way. I remember the very first time I read any coming book was I thought he was such a, a good reader, you know, storyteller. Okay. So here's a question for you. Goldfinger is regarded by many Bond fans as the best Bond film. Why do you think so many people hold this picture in high regard? I have no idea. There's 24... See, that that wouldn't be my... my, um, Of all the Bond films I've read, I've, I've seen, I would never pick that one. That's interesting. Goldfinger. Interesting, because it is a Connery film, and you do love Connery, so why, why would yeah, you not... but at the same time, the storyline is, uh, you know, what's the word, convoluted? You know, you have to... And, and uh, I mean, I don't know if there's a reason for it other than for greed. Well, greed factors into his, his plan, for sure, yeah. He, he wanted to control the... the, the yeah, his idea was to was to destroy or not destroy, but render useless the, 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 Fort the commerce of, of right. the Western world. Yeah, so that his gold collections, his reserves of bullion, would be right. higher valued, and he could make more money from them. Well, if if, if he you know controlled more most of it, it's greed, really. You know, whatever the more he he got, the more he wanted. Now, this is the first film where we see the Aston Martin DB5, that silver car, of course, it's so famed for James Bond. What do you think of the vehicle? Oh, I thought it was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, is, what do you call it? Aston Martin? That's right, Aston yeah. Aston Martin, isn't it? Is it an English car, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, and I think that's what... Yeah, I, I mean, all these attachments, I think, are fantastic. Have any questions about, have you asked me? I don't know. We're just okay, having, we're because just are we going to go through the whole James Bond thing? Well, yeah. I mean, all the stories? No, yeah, we're going to go through all the films. That's lovely. I know that I got my things, and I'm enjoying you know, reviewing them. Yeah, that's good. Let me ask you then, in terms of Goldfinger and its legacy, it is a Sean Connery film. It is very highly regarded by deep-set Bond fans. Where does it rank on your list? Oh, 
um, I'm trying to, the one I liked the best was, was uh, the, the, the story. Nashry was when he, he met the woman he fell in love with and married. And that was the big guy that money did it once. Yeah, that's right. We we watched that. And one. I thought after I saw that one that if Sean Connery had done that, that would have been a lot. It would have been much nicer than you know the way he portrayed it. Yes, and I remember you saying that when we reviewed it a couple of weeks ago. But in terms of Goldfinger, would you rate this as one of your favorites? Oh yeah. So anything that Connery is in is going to have an advantage, isn't it? Realistically. Yeah, well, see, you know, he portrayed it at the beginning, right. and he, he he was just a, a you know a handsome womanizer. That what's his name, the author? His idea of of, mm-hmm. uh, of womanizing. Well, let me let me ask you now. Um, having just watched uh, having just watched the film, hopefully some of these impressions are fresh in your mind. Uh, what did you think of the female representations in the film? And I, I don't just mean the Bond girl, but kind of the way that women in Goldfinger tend to be either treated or represented. Because as we discussed a moment ago, Pussy Galore, of course, was a, a lesbian character in the book. And she's very overpowered by Bond and she quite easily gives in to him. Does any of that sort of uh, chauvinistic or macho stuff bother you at all? Not really. I mean, I didn't look at that particular part as you know, person being a lesbian because I don't didn't didn't get that when I read the book, and I I or at least I, if I did, I didn't remember it. Yeah. Okay. But what about the and, film? Uh, but I could see it. You know, the fact that she was at a flying school that uh-huh. all the pilots would be females. Yeah, and she does try to shake off Bond's advances very early in the film, but eventually he wins her over. Yeah. But you you didn't mind. Well, so she wasn't that much of a, of a lesbian. <laughs> no, I guess she wasn't really a true lesbian. No, exactly. But yes. there was that word was not in my vocabulary when I was growing up there. No, <laughs> that's fine. Probably wasn't. No, I, I really either. didn't know. I remember seventeen years of age going into into um, you know nursing and learning, for instance, what an abortion was. Yeah. Never heard tell of it. But that, and, but that's kind of what I'm trying to say. Like uh, Fleming and I think the Bond films in general, they they do play with just how powerful Bond's um, magnetism is. You know that he, he can turn even a, a gay. He can turn a lesbian. Yeah, like, that's 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 very. Insane. Well, no, I didn't. See, I didn't. I wasn't on that road at all uh, because I number one, I don't remember thinking that Pussy Galore was a lesbian. Okay. But I can I can see that this generation would you know. With, yeah, sure. You, you portray nothing but beautiful women and uh, in flying planes and you know flying school. Yeah. I guess I, I don't know. I can't. I can't project what this generation thinks anymore. Well, <laughs> let me ask you then. Did at the time of watching at the time of watching these films in the sixties. How much do you recall about representation of powerful women? Because Pussy Galore is a powerful female character. Because as you said, well, there wasn't you know, there, there wasn't too many you know road roles you know that I yeah. could think of. The biggest female that I knew when I was growing up was Queen of England. They weren't 
portrayed as powerful women either. No, and was there ever, and, and coming at it from today, because you're quite a strong woman, you always have been, do you watch this film and feel as though maybe they could have done more or they shouldn't have, they shouldn't have played the women so soft and vulnerable? Or? Uh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly. I push over. Every one of them, you know, just drools. <laughs> and I don't, don't see that at all. So you don't, that doesn't bother you though, watching the film? No, not a, not a bit. Okay, because you drool over Sean as well, right? Yeah, exactly. It's his mouth. It's, you know, not exciting, but it's, um, it's almost pretty. Okay. <laughs> and, and of course, his accent, that helps too. The accent does help. Let me try to let me try to pull us back before uh, we finish up here and ask you to think about okay. ask you to think about the henchman odd job the Korean guy. What do you think of him? Uh, it was kind of silly. You mean the guy with that hat would lop your head off? Yeah, and who got electrocuted there at the end? Yeah, well, he never said a word, and, he, and uh, you know, his, instead of a gun, he had a hat. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess if you thought of it, maybe that in itself is an art, but <laughs> did it work all the time? Uh, killing people with, with a, a metal-brimmed hat, I guess it is an art. Yeah, it must be a, a knife or something, was it? Yeah, it was a, some sort of a blade of some sort, yeah. So did you did you enjoy him? Because he he's regarded as a very popular henchman. Yeah, he did. I mean, well, let's put it, I mean he took the head off that statue, which was... Kind of, uh, I was going to say marble, but I guess it was, wasn't. It was a. Yeah, it was some sort of ceramic, but it was. Yeah, it was, it was probably a cool just. Scene. Yeah. Pastor Paris or something. Last couple of questions for you then. Okay. Um, first of all, what did you think of the music, either the song by Shirley Bassey or the score itself? I didn't, I didn't like that one. You didn't like that one, no? Not, not as much as some of them. No, no, I did not really. All right. And what about, um, the final question then, where do you think Goldfinger will rest on your your favorite Bonds overall? Will it be up at the top? Is Goldfinger one that you do prefer, you would like to watch again? No, not, not particularly. No, I, I, can, I can go down in the whole list of it, but I wouldn't, when I go through them, I just pick the ones that I like. And I, that... That one I hadn't seen for a long time, well, but I did enjoy it. That, that's, that's interesting to hear because I thought that this would have been a little bit higher for you. So what, yeah. I'm, what I'm getting from this uh, conversation is that you like Goldfinger. It's a good story. It's fun to watch Connery. He looks good. There's good yeah. scenes. But I don't, yeah, I don't say, but yeah. I'm, I'm comparing them with the other ones now. And yeah. the... the, the um, Acting, I guess, out of the, of the stories seemed to be more exciting than that one. Yeah, and I would agree with you, actually, Granio. I think that the acting in this film, there are some really nice, nuanced performances, and I think Connery has some really good moments, but he is very quiet and very still for a lot of this film there's yeah. you know there's not a lot of action going on in the middle section of this film it that's has right a, it has a, I, I it has felt a climax, the, the, the same thing when I was watching it yeah so I would agree he, with you you know he doesn't yeah. he doesn't even get it busted up all right. Well, we're gonna rec we're gonna record our episode tomorrow, and as soon, yeah. as, as soon as I find out what our next film is, I'll give you a call so that you can write it down. 
and <laughs> on the piece of paper yes. and then I'll turn around and, and wonder where I did put the paper well, there's but I, look I know all of the films anyway so you don't have to worry about it oh I'm sorry to be talking to you again I'm certainly not worried uh, yeah. and I'll give you a call in the next few days and let you know what your next assignment's going to be I, we should actually okay, we should actually okay. give you a double O we should give you like a double a double O uh, a code name shouldn't we because you're given an assignment to watch a film and to think about it every two weeks. So, okay. what could you be, I wonder? You could be double okay. uh, O-G-O. That's what you could be. Double <laughs> O-G-O, okay. Yeah, okay, that's what you'll be, double O-G-O, okay? Okay. <laughs> Great. Right, well, I love you. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll pass on your regards to the boys and we'll talk to you soon. Love you, darling. Okay, see you now. Bye-bye. Bye. So, there you go, guys. Uh, our grandmother's opinion on Goldfinger, which I have to admit surprised me in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, for, for it being a Connery film, I thought it would yeah, be near the top. Exactly. But I recall that I think her favorite Connery is from Russia of Love. Yeah, I, I don't recall that, but I'm sure I'll be told. <laughs> I don't know. I could also be contradicted <clears throat> as well, so who knows? That's true, yeah, yeah. Did anything yeah. she said... Did anything she said surprise you? No, not at no. all. No. I mean, not that I've ever really taught, spoken to Granio about Bonds per se. Obviously, you guys would know more, but not that. For, judging by the rest of the mm-hmm. uh, the interviews that I that that I've been uh, you know uh, privy to, no. <laughs> I will I, confess that I was surprised that she wasn't aware of uh, what an abortion was before she got into like nursing school. Yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because we we talk here so casually about gender roles and about rights and wrongs and things, but it it, it wasn't just a different time. It was a different different culture oh, yes sure. absolutely and absolutely. i mean the way so that she just shoots is... down the the um the, the comment about how women were treated unfairly she's like well just it's almost as if she's saying just get over yourself <laughs> you know you know and <laughs> i don't know yeah. I, hey it is it's like a lot of those veteran those veteran actors like judy dench and whatnot you know, saying, you know, about how, what this Me Too thing is just, you know, a, a load of bull and all this kind of stuff, you know? Well, that's, yeah, exactly. That's a good example. It's not too far yeah. removed from that, is it? No, no. So anyway, Goldfinger for, for Granio. And you know what, guys? Like, and to listeners, for that matter, who are, are, who are kind of working through these interviews with our 93-year-old grandmother and wondering, what are these guys up to? Uh, I think I'm going to steer some questions a little differently. Because yesterday's chat would have been better had she not watched the wrong film <laughs> to start the day yeah, off. Right? Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, always, I'm always happy to talk to her. But I think I'm going to steer some different questions I'm, because I'm getting a lot of the same responses from her. I mean, that was heavily edited. Yeah. I took about 15 minutes of, of her stuff that she had said before out of that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, not, I'm not blaming her for that and her age. While that's certainly, no, part, no. While that's certainly yeah. part of it, it's also maybe down to the fact that I'm asking questions of her that are very similar each time. So I think what I'll right. do yeah. is gear some questions more decidedly to the to the scopes of the film 
and less the actors. I know what I'm going to get with her. Is there a difference, Granio, between Goldfinger, Sean Connery, and You Only Live Twice, Sean Connery? No, it's Sean Connery. It's the guy that's up in a framed picture above my bathroom. You know, like, that's, that's, that's it. Don't... <laughs> Don't ask me to, to surgically dissect the nuances of his performances, right? I, I'm asking dumb questions, and I, I appreciate that. So I'm, I'm going to do something different next time to make her, to, to get her a bit livelier, I think. Okay. okay. Anyway. That's, 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 that's fair enough. It's still a treat to hear her. And of course it is, yeah. I do, yes. I, I do like her perspective at the end after all our scoring. I, I think it helps the show. Yeah, I think it does too. I, I like it. I always look forward to it. Jeff, what do you think? You're the outsider here, buddy. Oh, no, I, well, if we're talking just about uh, getting her, sort of her opinion on stuff, it's fantastic. It's a, it's a nice sort of, uh, it's a nice little nugget of, uh, of sort of a different train of thought, a, a different generation. Instead of guys, you know, who, uh, you know, watch films and, and you know, we, we understand films and, how to, and you know, mise-en-scene and atmosphere. And we sort of just, we, we talked to, uh, you know, someone from a different generation who watched movies differently, but also enjoys Bond as it yeah. is. It's nice to get a different sort of train of thought. Yeah, it's interesting to show like also how kind of possibly problematic, you know, society is this day yeah. in terms of like overreacting to a lot of these things because yeah, yeah. back then like we're reacting, you know, um, in a bad, we're reacting I think as we should because, you know, we're educated in this day and age and how Bond treated women, particularly Pussy Galore in that film was not ideal whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, audiences back in the 60s, are they terrible people or human beings, you know, for not responding to that the way that we did? You know what I mean? Yeah. As you said, it's not just different. It's not just a different age or generation. It's a different culture. Totally. Yeah. yeah. This is absolutely- All right. Well, thanks, Granny O, for that. And we hope you guys will keep tuning in and listening to more. For as long as we do this series, we're going to keep yes, her please. involved in it. What do we think Fleming would have made of this film? I think um, because I think he was aware about how movies were cut and put together, particularly with the McClory fiasco and even so then and coming out of the sets and whatnot. I think he would have he would have been happy with the change of irradiating the the, uh, gold. Um, I honestly think that he would have agreed to it. And maybe he might have he might have actually liked it. But we never really got any quotes on him because because that script was probably finished before he died. Right. That's right. Well, I I have some information about the release of the book and. I mean, he was alive during the pre-production of this film. So, yeah, it's possible that maybe he did have a have a nose in to how the script was being developed. Yeah, I have a book called um, the, the Man of the Golden Typewriter, and it has a lot of Fleming's letters. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So for next show, if we just kind of go, go back a little bit as a, as a bit of a, of, a, of a retouch, I'll see if I I'll see if I can find that particular letter and dig it up and we can like, just re- reread parts of it out or something. Ah, great. Well, let me share with you guys then just as the literary connection goes. I, too, think he would have enjoyed this film and I think he would have approved it. But let me uh, read from um, Matt Parker's book, Goldeneye, about the... The, the life that he led in Jamaica uh, by the time or as Goldfinger was being written I should say he and his wife and were spending their winters apart the marriage wasn't going very well and so he was writing these books uh, largely in isolation even when married and when together and Goldeneye he was still writing in this isolation this is with um, Anne Charteris that's right? right yeah but but he was yeah. now he was now truly alone in Jamaica as he was writing this because his wife was not spending the seasons there with him 
Goldfinger is the longest and densest of the Bond novels. It went straight to the top of the bestseller charts and was well-reviewed, the Observer commenting under the headline, Sophisticated Sapper, that Fleming, even with his forked tongue sticking right through his cheek, remains manically readable. As in Diamonds Are Forever, Bond and Goldfinger is on an economic mission. Britain is suffering from a currency crisis and a high bank rate because the villain, Oric Goldfinger, is smuggling out gold, the foundation of our international credit. As during the recent Suez crisis, the Americans are unwilling to help. Goldfinger, a misshapen short man with red hair and a bizarre face, is the richest man in England, but not actually English, of course, and his international headquarters is in the badlands of the Caribbean, in Nassau. He's part of the international super-rich, a class Fleming, of course, knew from Jamaica's smartest hotels and whom he increasingly disliked. In Miami, he speculates the hotel bill would have used up his year's salary in just three weeks. Goldfinger's allies are Germans and Koreans, the cruelest, most ruthless people in the world. Like Sir Hugo Drax, Goldfinger cheats at cards, and like Spang from Diamonds Are Forever, he doesn't drink or smoke. He's not to be trusted on either count. Bond gets the better of his enemy twice, in Miami and on the golf course. But then, in a possibly fatal plot flaw, Goldfinger makes the mistake of employing Bond to help in his plan with the aid of American gangsters to rob Fort Knox and hand the gold over to Smirsch in the form of waiting Soviet cruiser. It was modern piracy with all the old-time trimmings, Bond muses. Goldfinger was sacking Fort Knox as Bloody Morgan had sacked Panama. So Bond once more comes to the aid of the Americans on American soil, and although they are grateful, he is left dissatisfied after Goldfinger escapes. Who in America cared about the Bank of England's gold, he asks himself. Who cared that two English girls had been murdered in the course of this business? Who really minded that Goldfinger was still at liberty now that America's bullion was safe again? Bond wonders in a passage that seethes with post-Suez resentment at the United States. Hmm. And now, Whereas the movie was totally targeted for Americans, if hmm. you think about it. Yeah, it's interesting. But that book, remember, the book was uh, the, what? I'm, I'm trying to remember, Josh. The book was the... Uh, seventh maybe the seventh Fleming novel yeah after Dr. Uh, no so I have to check that but yeah I think, you're right. I think it's seventh anyway I'll just read you guys a little bit just a short section here from uh, a section of the novel that is also in the film so I'll try to keep it rather similar this is uh, when Bond is observing Goldfinger cheating at cards from the beginning Bond had been glancing down at the game from time to time it seemed to be proceeding normally Bond bent again to the binoculars Already, Mr. DuPont seemed to be a new man. His gestures were expansive. The half-profile of his pink face was full of animation. While Bond watched, he took a fistful of cards out of his hand and spread them down, a pure canasta in kings. Bond tilted the binoculars up an inch. The reg, the big, sorry, red-brown moon face was impassive, uninterested. Mr. Goldfinger was waiting patiently for the odds to adjust themselves back in his favor. While Bond watched, he put up a hand to the hearing aid, pushed the amplifier more firmly into his ear, ready for the signals to come through again. Bond stepped back. Neat little machine, he commented. What are you transmitting on? He told me, but I can't remember. She screwed up her eyes. A hundred and seventy-somethings. Would it be mega-somethings? Mega-cycles. Might be, but I'd be surprised if he doesn't get a lot of taxicabs and police messages mixed up with your talk. Must have fiendish concentration. Bond grinned. Now then. All set? It's time to pull the rug away. Suddenly, she reached out and put a hand on his sleeve. There was a clatter ring on the middle finger, two gold hands clasped around a gold heart. There were tears in her voice. Must you? Can't you leave him alone? I don't know what he'll do to me. Please. She hesitated. She was blushing furiously. And I like you. It's a long time since I've seen someone like you. Couldn't you just stay here for a little more? She looked down at the ground. If only you'd leave him alone, I'd do... The words came out in a rush. I'd do anything. Bond smiled. He took the girl's hand off his arm and squeezed it. 
Sorry, I'm being paid to do this job and I must do it. Anyway, his voice went flat. I want to do it. It's time someone cut Mr. Goldfinger down to size. Ready? Without waiting for an answer, he bent the binoculars. They were still focused on Goldfinger. Bond cleared his throat. He watched the big face carefully. His hand felt for the microphone switch and pressed it down. There must have been a whisper of static in the deaf aid. Goldfinger's expression didn't, didn't alter, but he slowly raised his face to heaven and then down again, as if in benediction. Bond spoke softly, menacingly, into the microphone. Now hear me, Goldfinger, he paused. Not a flicker of expression, but Goldfinger bent his head a fraction, as if listening. He studied his cards intently, his hands quite still. This is James Bond speaking. Remember me? The game's finished and it's time to pay. I have a photograph of the whole setup. Blonde, binoculars, microphone, and you and your hearing aid. This photograph will not go to the FBI in Scotland Yard so long as you obey me exactly. Nod your head if you understand. The face was still expressionless. Slowly, the big round head bent forward and then straightened itself. Put your cards down, face upwards on the table. The hands went down. They opened the cards, slid off the fingers onto the table. Take out your checkbook and write a check to cash for $50,000. It's made up as follows. 35 you've taken from Mr. DuPont, 10 for my fee, the extra 5 for wasting so much of Mr. DuPont's valuable time. Bond watched to see that his order was being obeyed. He took a glance at Mr. DuPont. DuPont was leaning forward, gaping. Goldfinger slowly detached the check, countersigned it on the back. Right, now jot down this on the back of your checkbook and see you get it right. Book me a compartment on the Silver Meteor to New York tonight. Have a bottle of vintage champagne on ice in the compartment and plenty of caviar sandwiches. The best caviar. And keep away from me. And no monkey business. The photograph will be in the mails with full report to be opened and acted upon if I do not show up in good health in New York tomorrow. Not if you understand. Again, the big head came down slowly and up again. Now there were traces of sweat on the high, unlined forehead. Right. Now hand the check across to Mr. DuPont and say, I apologize humbly. I've been cheating you. Then you can go. Bond watched the hand go across and drop the check in front of Mr. DuPont. The mouth opened and spoke. The eyes were placid, slow. Goldfinger had relaxed. It was only money. He'd paid his way out. Just a moment, Goldfinger. You're not through yet. Bond glanced up at the girl. She was looking at him strangely. There was misery and fear, but also a look of submissiveness, of longing. What's your name? Jill Masterson. Goldfinger stood up, was turning away. Bond said sharply, Stop. Goldfinger stopped in mid-stride. Now his eyes looked up on the balcony. They'd opened wide as when Bond had first met him. Their hard-level X-ray gaze seemed to find the lenses of the binoculars, travel down them, and through Bond's eyes to the back of his skull. They seemed to say, I shall remember this, Mr. Bond. Bond said softly, I'd forgotten. One last thing. I shall be taking a hostage for the ride to New York. Miss Masterson, see that she's at the train. Oh, and make that compartment a drying room. That's all. And that's the end of that section in the book. So Bond's a little bit more... <clears throat> he's a little bit more aggro in the book, I think, than playful. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. But yeah, uh, definitely... Yeah. All the extortion going yeah, in there no, and stuff no. like that. He's uh, definitely a lot more serious, yeah. I would say, here. I wonder now, guys, if we're ready to select the film for episode six. Oh, yeah. I think we are, too. Just one thing, I think... Of course. That... Um, I think we kind of discussed earlier on about how we wanted to do the show and everything. Yep. What was your highlight from the Goldfinger overall, Scott? What, the film? Yes. Uh, I think my my highlight overall was just how how enjoyable it was to watch 
uh, Connery acting because I, I feel like I got him at his best here in this film. I think what you were saying was correct that this is this is Connery acting at his best, and he's fun to watch. He's good looking, obviously. He's always nice to to see in the frame, and he's very well dressed. He was fun in this film to watch and to follow, and I, I liked that. I liked two scenes particularly. I liked the. Um, the discovery of Jill's painted body. I, I really enjoyed that. I thought that was a serious scene that could have fit in a film perhaps less serious, or sorry, uh, more serious than, than this one. You know, it worked really well. Everything was firing on all cylinders, which gave it some gravity. So I like that. And I, I did also really like the, um, the, the Switzerland stuff too. So I liked it, but I'd say my takeaway was Connery. I think that this is the one I would recommend. Uh, I think I like From Russia With Love a little better, if I recall. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. I don't know. It's been so long, but this is definitely a Connery film that I would recommend. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think my highlight of, of overall, I mean, I agree with you with the Connery, but um, I, I, more, I just noticed more and more that sequence between um, Pussy Galore and Goldfinger, uh, having the mint juleps um, on on there, that was some great acting, and mm-hmm. it really brought depth to Goldfinger as a character and as a villain in particular, mm-hmm. and not just in terms about how him just shooting people on screen or killing people on screen, but how he uses human beings, you know, and it goes with that line going, you know, he'll kill girls, little girls like you, or, you know, he really is mad. Um, that to me was just a, a great moment in the film that I, I overall I never really noticed before, and it, it kind of just took me by surprise and how well it was. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jeff? Um, to be honest, I think it a lot of it like for me a specific scene. I guess the whole like I was saying the whole movie this the atmosphere just it, it just it got me you know uh, and I so I really enjoyed the whole thing. For one scene, I guess it's it's kind of the um, the gin game. Uh, was it was a was a nice scene, uh, just sort of seeing him work and and how he, you know, catches uh, Goldfinger off guard like that. Uh, mm-hmm. It was really it was a really good scene to see. But overall, it's just um, it's just a fun movie to watch. Like, that's why I mean I think that's why we all kind of gave the atmosphere uh, a fairly high rating because it's really Bond at his best and it's Connery doing what he does. Well mm-hmm. said. Yeah. Okay. And on that note, guys, it's time to select our next film. So. Inside wheel is spinning. Oh, this is a prolonged suspense today. It's cocky. Yeah. You might say, yeah. This is what laser being going between my legs. Oh, by the way, it was the seventh novel. Okay, thank you for that. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh and Jeff, listeners, all and sundry, our next film is Bond 22. Bond 22. Quantum of Solace, okay. All right. That's fine. That's cool. Yep. Yep. Jumping again a couple of decades. (laughs) So Quantum of Solace. And uh, this is going to be a trick for us because... It is kind of like a sequel to Casino Royale, isn't it, if I remember correctly? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it really is. So we're going to have to kind of keep that in perspective when we're mm-hmm. analyzing it. Well, we can do that, guys. We're, we're big and bad enough to do that. We're, we're up for a challenge. Okay, well, I, I mean, it's also a standalone. It was released as a standalone, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure in a way you can see. Just think of the denouement kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Is, look at the opening sequences, like 
the beginning of the story and we were we just kind of put the pieces together. <laughs> And we'll have an interesting uh, connection to one of Ian Fleming's lesser-known short stories, I think. Yeah, and we can also talk about the title song, because that's definitely something to, to discuss. Yeah, it is. And we can probably talk about a writer's strike, because I think there was one going on with this script as well, wasn't there? Oh, oh yeah, that is that that's is right. right. Yeah, the, the famous Hollywood writer's strike. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, that's us done. Uh, roulette table's now put back away. And the casino's closed. So thanks again, guys. It's been fun. We'll yeah. talk to you soon. From frigid, cold Ottawa, Jeff and I say adieu. Adieu. And adieu here from wet, damp, and placid Scotland. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>